Well, I'm broke for the rest of the year. And you know why, don't you? Must have something to do with CDs. It has everything to do with CDs. It has everything to do with September 30th and October 7th, which were two of the biggest like CD release days of the year. And there were so there are so many good CDs out now, and I'm just going crazy. I'm I'm happy. I got all these CDs on the way. I'm not gonna have any time to listen to them, but I guess I'm gonna have to make time to hear a few of them because we're gonna have to talk about them. Yeah. And uh, that's it. I guess uh, my Christmas is over, as oh. are my friends, because I'm not gonna get them anything. <laughs> <laughs> I would if I could. <laughs> what did you say? The new Fabrizio Bosso CD is uh, 4,000 oh, yen? The new Fabrizio Bosso CD, it, which is what? Stevie Wonder, right? Stevie Wonder tunes, yeah. yeah it's called We Wonder. Amazon USA, because it's from Italy, I guess. I guess the label. They want twenty six ninety nine for that. And with the, uh, the uh, weak yen against the very strong US dollar, hmm. in Japan, they want 4,000 yen. For a single Jeez. CD, a, a CD should cost in Japan 15, 1500 to two thousand yen. Yeah, yeah. Which is like fifteen to twenty dollars when there's parity with the U.S. dollar and the, the yeah. Japanese yen, which we don't have now. But this this is like that's a, causing like the equivalent of what we. It's it's like us if you're earning yen, you'd be paying forty dollars. You know what feels like forty dollars for right. a CD. It's a bottle of whiskey <laughs> or two bottles of wine. Yeah, or a single CD. A single CD. Oof. Yeah, should be able to get two for that price. Yeah, or more, or two and a half. Well, this uh, dollar to yen situation can't continue much longer. So yeah, it doesn't seem. Although, in classical CDs for me come from England because I get I go through Presto Music. They're right. very good, and they uh, you know, the 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 pound has gone way down too. So um, it's still kind of with, with the yen. I mean, the yen it's not really anywhere equal to the yen. The yen is much yeah. weaker, but still, it's a little more affordable for me at the moment so that's okay you know taking mm. a beating this year yeah <laughs> well ladies and gentlemen anyway. you're listening to music lovers woes yep more cds less friends that's what i say that's what i predict in 2023 <laughs> <laughs> when their stockings aren't stuffed this christmas yeah. <laughs> but again we we do we are the hosts of the adult music podcast, which, if you think about it, is the gift that keeps on giving. Seems to, yeah, because we, we just keep giving you all this great music to listen to, don't we? That's right. On yeah. episode eighty four this week, wow, yeah, the podcast with music for the mature mind, right? However, uh, I'm being more frugal and uh, just sticking with Good for uh, you. These are you'll get to retire one day. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, when we get to the best of 2022, I'll make a list of things that I really want to have on CD and uh, order some things. But yeah, I need to build a new room in my house for this. You know, it's gonna <laughs> to reinforce the floor for all those CDs. Yeah, yeah I should have a basement. <laughs> this week we're going to uh, be focusing on piano music. Uh, piano or, music, at least all keyboard music. There's some harpsichord in there too. I threw a harpsichord in just because I thought, well, you can never really have too much piano, but I thought it might be nice for variety. You know? Yeah. So if you haven't uh, checked out that listening list, well, let me tell you about it. Uh, in our episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings we're going to talk about. Or at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place. Uh, except for the one Hyperion recording, because it's not available on streaming. Yep. But I'll put a link to their do. 
homepage mm. so you can check out samples. And on Deezer, where the podcast playlist is, you can also listen to the podcast. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. Now, if you don't see the full description or the links are not active or easy to follow on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Uh, take a moment, give us a ranking. Just takes a second to click or write a review. That helps us get listed in the recommendation categories. And that helps us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. A lot of things uh, we've got up in the months that we've had that up, including new releases throughout the week. And a bunch yeah, of jazz mostly things. Because I don't get on that enough. I got to yeah. do more. I usually, I handle the classical, I know, or, or rather don't handle it because I just don't <laughs> post anything on there. I got to get some stuff up anyway. October 7th was a big jazz release day as well. So yeah. a lot of new stuff came out this week. Well, I noticed that too, some big names, just like in classical music. Yeah. And I did buy a few jazz CDs, unheard, unreviewed by you, Russ, or us on adult music, because I just know mm -hmm. they're going to be good. You can leave a message or comment there on Facebook as well. Or if you'd like to contact us by email directly, we'd be happy to hear from you. And also, we'll be sure to reply. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. And there's also Bjork's new album, too, which I also want to use. So. Oh. <laughs> she's always interesting to me. She's mm. really, really quirky. I like that. You know, she's she's apparently like a, a mushroom on this album. It's, so it kind of has oh. to do with the earth, and she's become one of these plants i guess a fungi <laughs> yeah she's a fungus in these um in her concept for this mm. one so can't can't pass that up <laughs> all, right. all right so uh there's no we're not going to do a musical necrology this week but i just want to mention in passing there are two musical deaths this week mm. and the biggest one was um loretta lynn the um country oh, music right. singer um so she was 90 years old when she died yeah. she was just a big influence uh, country music, right? Yeah. I, I grew up, you know, her songs, well, she was already kind of, her songs were kind of older on the radio, but she made a big comeback with that Jack White produced album, uh, Van Lee Rose. And mm. there was the movie Coal Miner's Daughter when I was younger. Right. So I got to see that. So she became kind of an American icon. I just wanted to mention her. Mm -hmm. And you sent me something this morning. Um, the uh, a Japanese avant-garde composer died and um, he was, um, I forget his name, <laughs> which is terrible. I should know this. <laughs> Do you have it there? I could just look, I guess. Let me see. You can find it, yeah. Because I look uh, at this. Got to find it now because I can't remember this poor guy's name. <laughs> just get, he was married to Yoko Ono. I remember her That's name. That's right. <laughs> Which is really terrible. And uh, I knew that she was married before, but I didn't know it was. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that composer. either. It's, which is really odd. Toshi Ichianagi. Okay, Toshi Ichianagi. Okay, yeah. and he died at uh, age eighty-nine. Right. And um, I don't know. I don't know his music. Um, he's avant-garde, but I don't know what that means. Does it mean like Yoko Ono like avant-garde, or can you imagine what it must have been like in that house <laughs> when they were together? My God! It's, it says he studied with John Cage. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I wonder what John what studying with John Cage would be like. Like, what would he <laughs> teach you? Because you know? <laughs> he was very much of the moment, like his kind of spontaneous sort of. Um, ideas would would really often become well, his music you know so. yeah yoko ono had spontaneous ideas too <laughs> have, yeah, you ever seen, have you ever seen that uh video you can find it on youtube of uh john lennon playing with uh, chuck berry yeah i have and, heard that and when uh, yoko ono adds her vocals on top the look on chuck berry's 
face is priceless, <laughs> but it's one of yeah, my there's a legend of rock and roll too, which you showed John Lennon and is kind of like really thrilled to be playing with him too, yeah. you know, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, if you, I always I often imagine you're this, um, I shouldn't say this because he, he just recently died, but he's kind of, you know, you're, you're this avant-garde artiste. And you and your wife leaves you for a for a pop star. Like that's gotta hurt. Yeah. The world's not fair. <laughs> the world's not fair. We all know that. <laughs> Did you know that um, Yoko Ono, the, those kind of like real kind of screaming records that she made in the seventies, wound up having an influence on the B fifty twos of all bands. Really? I didn't know that. Because no. the um in Rock Lobster they do these um sort of these odd sounds like when they start naming all the sea creatures at the end, and that's really from Yoko Ono. Oh. Those, those sounds that the two girls make in that in that on that track, huh. so Yoko Ono's had a huge influence. Interesting. All right. Anyway, so much for that. So I just wanted to give that a mention. That's not an official musical necrology. We're not, you know. Yeah. But By the I, way, I thought yeah. they deserve country the music, and then uh, a little bit more out there than beyond our realm. It's beyond our realm, but it's it counts as adult yeah, music. I think sure. it's not kid stuff. So you know, should we should we start with the? Uh, Let's start with uh, Baroque. Baroque, going for Baroque here with um, the Hyperion label. Um, of course, this is a record you're not going to be able to hear streaming, so you're going to have to visit the website and buy the record if you really like it. And I would recommend buying this because the artist is Mahan Esfahani, Iranian-born American harpsichordist. He, um, he, he immigrated. He's a pretty interesting player. He has mm. a lot of odd sort of takes. Not I would say odd takes, but there, he, there are little little details in his playing that really kind of are ear grabbing. I think he stretches the capabilities of the harpsichord. He uh, does that too. He does things with it that don't seem possible. Yeah. Anyway, the recording we're talking about is uh, Bach. He's been recording a lot of Bach lately, and this is the Italian concerto, a work that I really love, and the French overture. They usually get paired together, and then there are some extra tracks on there, too. Okay, as we said, on the Hyperion label. So let's uh, just get right down to it. A harpsichord recording. Very nice. I like it. This starts out with the Italian concerto. First movement. We hear he's... Oh, we're just going right into this, aren't we? I feel kind of like I didn't do like a proper setup or something. <laughs> anyway, the first movement has a uh, good spring to the rhythm and brightness to the sound. Now, I was recently listening to his recording of the uh, the Bach Partitas, Another set of works that I really love, and they're mm -hmm. really very gentle and bell-like, and just really gorgeous. This is a really different sound than we're uh, than we had on that one, anyway. It's it's a it's a bright sound, and uh, the thing about this when you when you're playing a box, say Italian influenced work, you want to get that sort of spring to the rhythm because that was what it, Italian music at the time was all about. Is this kind of like this this bounce to the rhythm? It was like almost leaping out of the of the instrument. So that was mm -hmm. the, their whole sound think of vivaldi how those um they're really rhythmically vibrant if not you know they're not like syncopated or anything like jazz but they're the, the rhythm kind of jumps out so yeah the instrument sounds a bit heavier than the very light chiming instrument that we heard on his partitas album he has as always uh, some subtle oddities of phrasing that make the performance fresh um and one example i pulled out was like these little staccato figures that he throws in the way he quickly cuts off notes at the end of certain phrases, you know, just you think it's going to ring out and he just kind of cuts it off right away. And it just kind of gives it a different profile. You know, the, the whole thing feels different when he does that. And of course, all of the voices stand out. I did the, the CD doesn't have a picture of the instrument that he's playing, but I think it's got two manuals, at least manual meaning the keyboard, you know, and mm -hmm. one of them, 
the way these work, there are different kinds of actions on harpsichords. Like if you have two manuals, one will like have like a single string attack, so it'll be quiet, and the other manual will have three strings. It'll you know it'll attack, so it'll be louder. There are also single manual keyboards where you can adjust that just by like pulling a rod and out okay. of the side and things like that. But um, you can't really do that in the middle of the performance, but you can quickly change keyboards that you're playing to get these soft and loud mm. sounds. There's a lot of that. So there's a lot of uh, quick changes of sound from loud to soft. He uses this effect a lot, and it works really well. I always mm. find it kind of uh, appealing to hear it. It's like it puts certain sections in high relief. First movement, lively, satisfying, full of detail. Loved it. Not my number one choice of you know performances mm. of this work, though. So... But still, a really, a really great one. I can't really say what my number one one is, but it's, hmm. it's just not this one. <laughs> okay. But it is up there. It's really good. Okay. Second movement, Andante. Now, this one um, has a very slow sort of left-hand figure with, with this sort of climbing and falling like thirds. And then there's a bass note that plays twice. And it can be very generic, but not in Esfahani's hands. He plays the left hand muted. It sounds more like guitar strings. So I guess he's got like the, the some mute on the um, one of the keyboards while he's playing the melody on another keyboard, probably the single string one. There are apparently, okay, I said two keyboards. The right-hand melody rings out brightly in this movement. I personally, I question this approach. I think I would kind of like a similar sound in both hands, but it's cool. I mean, I'm just interested to hear it. It was a little hmm. different. While I was listening to this, I was curious to hear how it was going to pan out rather than admire the beauty of it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, oh, I wonder how this is going to sound all the way through. So the approach makes the two layers of musical line highly audible. And while the right hand sings, the left hand kind of trudges with its mutes and short durations. And not in a bad way. It's kind of, it's interesting. But the two voices are indeed in stark relief. So you don't really get a sense of this movement as being really beautiful. It's kind of just contrasty more here. And it's it's kind of more of an intellectual sort of uh, approach to it. And that's going to be a big theme with us tonight, as you will hear <laughs> very shortly <laughs> after we finish with this, this album. The third movement, Presto, which is very bright, taking a, quite a clip here. It's all bright sounding, probably on the same keyboard. And all of the material is clearly audible, even at this speed. Impressive technique and shaping of lines. There's a nice switch to muted, quieter volume at the 1 minute and 11 second mark. Then back out at around the 1 minute 28 second mark. At a minute and 57 seconds, once again, we're on the quieter keyboard, but not quite muted this time. The notes still ring out at their low volume. Again, at 2 minutes and 24 seconds, that happens. And by 2 minutes and 50 seconds, he's hitting the keys as hard as possible as one can on a harpsichord. Now, please, when you're really banging on keys in the harpsichord, it doesn't make it louder, but I guess you could create kind of a racket with the attack, <laughs> which I yeah. think is sort of what we're hearing here. He gets an aggressive sound, and I don't really think of him as being an aggressive player. It's kind of funny. Hmm. Um, I think of him as being quirky, but now I've got a new angle on him. Uh, it gives the movement even more energy, and it's an exciting traversal of this movement. So the Italian concerto, worth a listen. I liked hmm. it. Next comes the more subdued French overture, which is basically an overture, and then a bunch of um, you know Baroque dance. It becomes a Baroque dance suite hmm. after that. So the first movement overture is, I think it's 12 minutes long. It's really <laughs> long. And uh, after that breakneck presto, we get this slow, regal French overture. And a French overture always has that dum, da-dum, da-dum, dotted rhythm. It, it was originally made, this, this rhythm was created by Lully, 
Jean-Baptiste Lully, Italian composer who worked for Louis XIV in France, for when the king came into the room, it was sort of his uh, procession music, mm. you know, so it, always, it would always have that rhythm. And Louis XIV was like a, a big fat guy who was apparently still <laughs> very light on his feet. But um, he, he, was, he was apparently a, a, a lively dancer, even at that, that weight that he uh, achieved. But um, so this is, a, this is after that. Lully started this and then it sort of spread through Europe. And here um, Bach is um, just showing us what he can do with it, which is a lot, actually, as, as, as it always turns out with Bach. Let's see. Esfahani manages to give this movement some forward drive through his heavy attack. He's really leaning into the sound, and he's got a slightly rhythmic anticipation of notes in the phrase. Like, it sounds like he's playing them like a fraction of a moment, like, sooner mm. than the beat comes down to give it a bit of a connection or an edge or, you mm. know, something like that. In the second minute, we're in a quieter section played on a single string keyboard. And then a new faster section starts at about the three minute and eight second mark and comes up on the brighter sounding keyboard. There's a total like sound change as well as speed change here. At around three minutes and 50 seconds, there's a nice handoff to a quieter sound. The interpretation pretty much progresses in this way with louder sections handing off to quieter sections. It pretty much goes on like that. At six minutes and 30 seconds, we're back to the slower regal French overture rhythm. At 7 minutes and 52 seconds, back to the faster material with change of volume, signaling change of section. Esfahani makes this piece easy for the listener to follow with his sudden changes of dynamic as we enter new sections. Now he sets a lively tempo for the fast section as he did in the first fast section. At around 11 minutes, the stately French overture material returns. It's played, then a new section with a quieter tone comes in. And finishes the overture in a quiet, stately way with a trill and final chord. So after this 12-minute overture, we get six dances, effectively six dances. There are a lot more tracks than six, but they I'll explain this as, as we do this. Actually, I'll explain it now. There's a six dances and there's a final movement echo where the um, material is sort of echoed that we hear. A melody is echoed in the background simulating like a big hall or a cave or something. On this particular album, a lot of these dances are divided into three separate tracks to isolate their different sections. So you'll have like Gavot 1, Gavot 2, and Gavot 1 da Capo, or from the beginning. Normally, that would be presented as a single track or a single movement. It's really one piece. The uh, current on this um, track that we're listening to now is fairly slow and rather complex in its harmony. I think of currents as being a lot faster than this. I mean, it does mean it's it's a dance name. This is relatively speaking for a current. The harmonic knots untie uh, up to the cadence at around the 30-second mark, and the material repeats. There's a second contrasting section. We go back to the tonic key for the final cadence. The gavat, it starts in the uh, middle section. This gavat has a pronounced rhythm to it, let's say. I don't know what I'm talking about here. The middle section is it's divided. The middle section is on a different track than the other two. That's what I mean. Uh, this gavat has a pronounced rhythm to it. Gavat 2 also has a pronounced rhythm, but as Fahani changes the tone to something a shade darker, it's a lot quieter than the outer section. At 48 seconds, the tone clarifies for a contrasting section. Then we get gavat 1 da capo, which is played as brightly as it was at the opening. And it has a bit more panache here, I thought. Anyway, next uh, we have a passepied, uh, which has a slight change of sound on this dance, darker, a bit muted sounding. Esfahani puts the rhythm of these dances in high relief, which is a detail I always appreciate in Baroque dance, in dance suites. 
The second passapied is a light chiming sound that we were familiar with from his uh, Bach Partidas album. Uh, I really love this sound, especially in its higher end. It sounds positively music box-like. It's very charming. The passapied sound maybe after the previous track, the passapied sounds a bit brighter when it starts and remains there. Next comes the Sarabande, always the centerpiece of a Baroque dance suite. It's slow, but this one moves with a bit more energy than we generally hear. It gets a fair amount of emotion, but Isfahani is more interested in keeping the structural lines discernible and plays this a bit more quickly than most pianists do. Again, when you play a slow piece slowly, it kind of sounds more emotional. When you play it at a little faster tempo, you kind of lose the emotion, so it sounds more intellectual, mm. and your ear is drawn more towards the structure or the sections or something a little more mathematical or intellectual, let's say. So... I'm thinking of this as kind of an intellectual approach to this album or to this music. Onwards, Bore 1. Another strongly emphasized rhythmic figure. Uh, Bore 2 is played on muted strings, making it sound lute-like. I like this effect. Yeah. It comes as a big surprise. Uh, the sound changes at 18 seconds to something with more of a chime to it. He's got a lot of great sounds on this particular mm -hmm. track. This is the, uh, I don't know what track this is, um, the 11th of, of this so I guess that's track 14, okay? Um, yeah. Bore 2, yeah. Right. I'm counting backwards because I have Roman numerals here <laughs> instead of the track number. So by the end of the section, we're back to the fully muted sound, and we hear the Bore da Capo. More emphasis and brightness in the repeat. Finally, we get to the Jig, which usually is very fast, but here it's got this sort of swaying motion. We get that dance feel. A lot of pauses in it. Um, not a perpetual motion type of Jig. It's more of a, it's got a few interruptions in it. They're all different, though, in Bach, Jigs. Uh, moderate tempo in this one, not fast. And the echo, the very last um, movement, is quicker than the Jig. And the echo effect has to do with pitting the quieter sound of one manual with the louder sound of the other, one imitating the other. So the quieter sound sounds like it's further away, and it's mm -hmm. echoing the, uh, the louder sound. Isfahani takes a quick tempo for this and comes down rather heavily, on the louder material. I enjoyed the sudden change to the quieter sound at a minute and 26 seconds, and there's a big crashing chord in the bass to end the piece. All right, there's extra material. We have four duets from Klavier Ubung three. Pub okay, published in 1739, close to the end of Bach's life. He died in 1750. And there are four duets. I didn't really have much to say about these, um, except for the timbres that are used. Um, for the first duet in E minor, BWV 802, there's a rather in-between timbre sound for this duet. It's kind of an odd-sounding thing. that He's got two different timbres going at the same time, and, and they're sort of blending together, I guess. Uh, the sound itself grabs the ear here. They don't always blend harmoniously either, but it certainly <laughs> keeps the ear alert, and there's a heavy unison at the end. The second duet in F major, uh, BWV 803, has a bright sound. Really a typical harpsichord sound. If you think about, say, the Adams Family theme, that's basically what this <laughs> sounds like. Amazing harmonic change at a minute and 26 seconds, which Esfahani draws out excellently, and it ends on a unison note at the end. Duet in G major has a, a gentler, lightly dancing duet with a chiming tone from the harpsichord. I'm wondering if these are all the same instrument with different settings or if he's playing actual different instruments. They all sound very different from each other. Mm. If this is a single instrument, I have to say the amount of different sounds it can produce is amazing. I, I wish I knew, really. Hmm. And the fourth movement, duet in A minor, uh, BWV 805, starts in the bass and opens up as a fugue, the top sound ringing out more than the lower voice. 
Esfahani is good at putting the various lines into relief via his attack and the sound he sets up on the instrument. I'm still thinking of the duet in E minor, the track 18. The, the two sounds that are put together mm. there are just really weird. It's, it's, it's an odd blend of timbres there. We next get to the uh, Capriccio in B-flat major on the departure of his beloved brother, BWV 992. I think this is a pretty early work, but I didn't write the um, year down here. Anyway, each movement has a sort of title, and it's it's the music is supposed to sort of outline this sort of um, these moods. The first movement, East eine Schmeichelung der Freunde um Denzelben von seiner Reise abzuhalten. Now, if you are a native German speaker, I just want to say, I don't speak German at all. So if that was <laughs> even close, you should be grateful. <laughs> all right. I have heard German spoken, so I think I can more or less say it. Anyway, I didn't get that one right, though, I know. Anyway, adioso. So this title means flattery for friends to keep them from going on their journey or this person from going on his journey this is a bright sound plays this rather straightforward earnest section i'm guessing the flattery starts at about 44 seconds just after the opening material the second movement east eine vorstellung unterschiedlicher god what long words Hasum die ihm in der fremde könnten for fallen. Man, it's always another word after. I think I'm at the end and then it takes a full line of text to get that title. Yeah, up. <laughs> I know. Boy. Jeez. No, no wonder why they're so intelligent. They have to be able to understand <laughs> these words. Anyway, different accidents that could happen to him abroad is what that means. Um, this sounds a bit more urgent at the beginning. The friends are kind of saying, Oh, if that you know, you might get uh robbed or killed or a rock might fall on you or something, you know, when you're traveling. Anyway, a lot of quick appoggiatories in the line. There's a kind of darkness and heaviness of attack that speaks of danger in this section, which Esfahani dramatically draws out. And the uh, third movement, East ein Allgemeines Lamento der Freunde, General Lament of Friends. A quiet, gentle attack with descending figures representing sadness, That which is off. This is like a Baroque trope. These kind of drooping mm, kind of mm. sounds represent crying or sadness or tears. Esfahani does well to draw out the weepy descending lines in this movement, I thought. Fourth movement, I'll hear common die Freunde. And then there's a parenthesis, will sie doch sehen, dass es anders nicht sein kann. And then the parenthesis ends, und nehmen Abschied. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the friends come and say goodbye, which is what that means. It sounds rather celebratory. And there's a bright sound in this very brief movement. And then really, I think the kind of highlight of the piece, the aria di postiglione, suddenly we're speaking Italian here. This imitates the postilion's horn. A postilion is a, it's a horse-drawn kind of, I guess, buggy. Mm. It's two, there are two horses on it. The, uh, I can't remember the, the actual rhythm. Ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta. You know, it's kind of, we hear it throughout this same postiglione horn sound imitated throughout this movement. It's kind of annoying, really. <laughs> and he has uh, arrived to take the friend away. And then there's a fugue. Fuga al imitazione della cornetta di postiglione. So this is a fugue in imitating the, the horn figure. Uh, we hear the horn theme in this charming fugue. It's played brightly and a lift to the rhythm. Interesting harmonic heard just after the last chord, too. 
And finally, we get a final capriccio in E major in honorum Johann Christoph Bachi Ordrufiensis. I've tried to look up Ordrufiensis everywhere and couldn't find a definition for it. <laughs> I don't know what it means. This is BWV 993. So anyway, it's for Johann Christoph Bach, I guess. He's in, in honor of something he achieved, I guess. And this has a cheerful, bright opening at the section change at a minute and 40 seconds as Fahani goes for a quieter dynamic. At 5 minutes and 22 seconds, we get a quick foray into the lute-like muted sound, and then back to the big, bright tone for the final chord. And that's the end of the album. Okay, so it's got a bit of the quirkiness we've come to expect from Esfahani over the years, and uh, that's one of the reasons I listened to him, really. I've enjoyed all of his releases over the years, and this was no different. I enjoyed this one, too. There are a lot of really sudden changes of sound, and I always sort of like that. It comes as like a pleasant surprise every time he changes the sound. I think he takes a lot of chances on this album, and all of them are at least uh, moderately successful. That would be the least I could say about them, and a lot of them are, are very successful. It's the kind of recording that can give you a different idea about this mostly familiar music, and I would recommend it. I want to say on this recording, the sound quality is quite different from some of his previous releases. That is true. Sometimes, yeah. I kind of forget which one it was, but he has one recording that we've listened to that the quality of the harpsichord is almost pressurized. It's as if yeah. your head is inside the box. And right, you, right. You get I think I know. Maybe the, the, this that... He did a CPE Bach CPE one. It might Bach be that one. That's one. It. Yeah. it might be that one. Yeah. However, on this one, I noticed there's a lot more reverb, uh, less pressurization. And if he desires so, he can really let the final sustain of notes ring out. And as you say, sometimes he clips them kind of curiously. But when he does let them ring, they seem yeah. to go on forever without that yeah. kind of uh, pressurized tone. So the quality is different. And that may mm. influence the way he. It might be a gigantic things. harpsichord. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Because they don't, generally don't have a lot of sustain. What I find really interesting in his approach is his sort of phrasing and interpretation because a lot of harpsichord is played rather mechanically when you hear performances right. just because yeah. you know it doesn't have that sustain. So things tend to come out rather uniform and without a lot of variety. And you don't get that all in his playing. Right. I noticed in some lines here... In the first work, he gets an almost organ-like approach to the performance, and it's as if oh, wow. he's imagining. I felt like there's a projected sustain that's not really there, but he's playing as if it were an organ piece. Mm. And then on other tracks, do you remember where that was? Because I didn't uh, pick up something. It's like in the that. first I didn't work. Interpret it that uh, way in the Italian concerto. Has to be the second. If it's I think slow. could be the second one. Yeah. Then. In some pieces, he sort of purposely has a lack of momentum that makes things very interesting. It's as yeah. if things become ponderous, especially in the left hand. It's like he's aching to play the notes, and you get a figure of feeling that either his fingers or the keys are sticking. And, yeah. you know, it's like you want to help him out or speed it up, right. but it's all in the interpretation. <laughs> and then in contrast, yeah. there's just some incredibly bursting motion lines that, where he's just exploding through things and all of that with you know dynamics that seem greater than what we imagine possible on the harpsichord so we've got right. furious playing it's sometimes frantic sometimes exhausting or he's conveying yeah. exhaustion in the line he sort of brings out this struggle and then relief and really speedy things all in contrast with impressive dynamics for a 
harpsichord. So I enjoyed mm-hmm. the performance. He really breathed extra sort of uh, exuberance into these works that could be played mechanically by other players. And yeah, so I right. It was a good and performance. Just all the variations, varieties of dynamic and things like that yeah. just make it, and the sustains that he's able to get on this because a harpsichord generally has a really fast decay to the mm-hmm. note but this these this seems to last longer it must be a gigantic instrument or it's recorded very close i really don't know yeah but it, it it's almost pianistic at times you know like mm-hmm. the way with the effects that he's able to get now the only thing you really can't that a piano can do that a harpsichord just really absolutely can't do you can't really mimic this is a crescendo or a decrescendo you can't gradually get louder there are yeah. no gradations it's it's what they call terraced Dynamics. It means it's either loud or it's soft, right. and this is all preset. How loud or soft it's going to be? He really does do a lot with that. Yep. Anyway, yeah, interesting. Very interesting album. Let's just say yeah. it that way. Good way to get to know these works, I'd say. The next album we're going to talk about, moving right on, is um, the last album of Haydn piano sonatas. This is Volume Eleven in the series that. Jean-Eflam Bavouzet has been doing for really, I think, over 10 years now. It's been wow. a, it's or close to it anyway. It, these have been released, um, you know, one a year, I guess, for, or maybe sometimes there were two a year, um, over a long period of time. And this is on the, uh, Chandos label, or Chandos, sorry. And, um, I decided to do this one because it's the last, it's the end of the series. Mm. And we had, they they had been released. A few of them were released while we were doing the podcast over the last two years. And I just never programmed them saying, oh, there'll always be another one. But now there isn't going to be another one. So I thought we, we should probably take a look at this. And I could say something about the entire series because I've heard most of it. I should That should be my winter project to hear all of the uh, all 11 hmm. albums he's put in this uh, series. It would be no hard thing. Anyway, Volume 11, uh, these are the works he still hasn't uh, performed. There are a lot of early works on this, but thankfully still a few later ones that we can uh, juxtapose with. This is an odd program, I have to say, because every work on this album is in a major key. So it's like a really (laughs) bright album. There's like no contrast at all, except within the works themselves, you know, whatever Haydn Mm. decides to do. So this is basically an 80-minute album, first of all, very long, which is the maximum length of a CD. They can go a few minutes longer now, but this, this is basically it. You know, mm-hmm. you know you're not going to get much more than 80 minutes on. So we're looking at the serene, sunny, uplifting blue skies throughout. So if you're looking for something to feel good about, this is kind of a, a good record for you to hear. And it's on Chandos. You can stream it. The 80 minutes goes by so fast, though, you won't even know it. You know, these these pieces mm. uh, all are all very engaging. And it has a lot to do with Bavouzet's touch and his playing. His, he is fantastic. One of our favorite pianists. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, can speak, I think I can speak for both of us because we've talked about this guy a lot privately as well as on the podcast, you know, on the adult music podcast. He's, a, he's an adult music favorite, yes. let's just say. Yeah, back from back in the days of his uh, Prokofiev piano concertos, which oh, was... Yeah. That's a great one. Really changed our views of those works, really. They were really great. Listen to that. Released in 2013, also on Chandos label. All right. We start out with Sonata Number 1 in G major. Now, this, is, uh, this isn't necessarily Haydn's first ever written sonata, but it's the one, first, it's the one they, that scholars decided to call Number 1. It's an early one, definitely. The, the booklet notes actually 
detail all of these and I did not read them. So I'm just going to go by the um, <laughs> what I heard, basically. I didn't want to be influenced. I guess I should have read for this information, though. Anyway, this is a very short piece, really. Each movement is very short. Um, this, this one's two minutes and 10 seconds long. This is a sonata form movement. And it starts with an elegant Haydn-like theme. When you think of Haydn, this is almost like when you hear this theme, it's almost like seeing Haydn's face. This is what his face would look like <laughs> if it were in musical form. Uh, the famous musical wit of the composer is heard almost immediately in the syncopated high notes with the melody and the bass. Uh, Bavazay's touch of this music is immaculate, very light, and a full of the sense of the humor and good spirits that Haydn uh, puts forth. He, um, he really gets Haydn's sense of humor. He hears all the little rhythmic or dislocations and the um what would you say the melodic kind of hmm. slights of hand or sort of just the odd sort of passing notes and he really manages to make you hear all of them this is really these are great performances all the way through it feels good to listen to this this is a, a piece of music that communicates absolutely no worldly cares whatsoever <laughs> it's just happy it lives for itself it's got enough rigor of form to sound like a serious artwork though despite that uh, it's wonderful and very short. This could have been longer. I uh, really did <laughs> want to hear more of this this kind of sp these spirits. Then there's a menuet. It's not a dancey one. He, uh, Haydn plays with the rhythm, and Bavuze emphasizes the bass notes here, making them plod for a bit of humor. Uh, very short at 54 seconds. The andante is also just over a minute, and it's light and a bit breezy. The high spirits come through. And then finally, an allegro, higher spirits than the andante, with this dancing rhythm and catchy theme, this is short at 43 seconds. And this one would have been great if it were longer, too, because it's really appealing. The performance captures the light mood perfectly throughout the sonata. Next, we get to a two-movement sonata, number 61 in D major. This is Hoboken 16, 51. Okay, uh, first movement, Andante. A later sonata juxtaposed with the one we just heard. It's a bit more complex, but still fairly short. This movement is only 3 minutes and 42 seconds long. And there are witty rhythmic dislocations in this work, a trademark of Haydn's musical wit. I'm happy and not at all surprised to say that Bavuze is on top of all of this and doesn't miss a harmonic sleight of hand. This is what great interpretation sounds like. Because you could just play through this. a lot, of, And some pianists do. They'll just kind of put the, mm. the sheet on the piano and just play all the notes. Oh, I just played this piece. But there's a lot, you know, it's just kind of like reading the words, like it's like reading Shakespeare and like not giving it any emotion. You, know, you want to put something in there. You want to understand what you're reading and show people. Music is like that too. And Bavuze really shows us what a good interpretation sounds like here. He understands the style and he finds a way to put the cross the mood of the piece. And there's a lot of humor in this. It's a satisfying movement by itself. But there's a final movement which features... More syncopated rhythm, rhythmic dislocations. Uh, listen to the rising line that leads to the cadence. This is a brief um, movement at two minutes and eight seconds. So we've been getting bite-sized work so far. All has been lightness and clear skies. And uh, that continues into the next uh, piece, which is a fantasia in C major. And it's also referred to as a capriccio. This is the uh, Hoboken 17-4. It's got some rhythmic dislocations, virtuosic flourishes for the period anyway, meaning very fast playing. Uh, the whole thing is quick in tempo, and within that, Bavuze keeps up the high spirits. At 2 minutes and 22 seconds, though, there's a sudden pregnant pause that lasts longer than you'd expect. Again, <laughs> sort of um, this little 
jokey sort of piece that's meant to make the audience wonder what's going to come next. And we quickly shuffled through some other keys before landing back on the cheerful major, as though we've briefly gotten lost, stopped, and simply walked back to where we went wrong and continued in the right direction from there. There's no real worry there. It's like you're just stopping and saying, okay, where am I? There. And then you go back and that's the effect I got from that. Uh, there's some lovely piano and forte contrast in the third minute and another bass note followed by a long pause at 3 minutes and 43 seconds. The material resulting has a hunting horn fanfare quality to it. Then some arpeggio flourishes. This piece has a lot of Scarlatti type figuration in it. It's really quick and it, the ending has like a lot of these, this sort of hunting horn kind of sounds in it. It sounds Italian in its springiness at the end too. The Adagio, this is the first really slow piece that we're hearing on this album, in F major, Hoboken 17-9. This is the first genuinely slow movement, and it's got a poignant melody over mostly repeated chords on every beat. Bavuze's light touch and very slight gradations on that touch draw the ear into the score's details. There's a gorgeous false cadence at 2 minutes and 10 seconds that Bavuze accents only slightly enough to make sure you don't miss it. Really perfectly judged. And this happens again at 3 minutes and 45 seconds. And I want to say, he plays this as an adagio. And this is really the first time this week that I'm getting like like an emotional sound out of the keyboard. Because we didn't hear that on the Esfahani. He's really not an emotional player. He really goes for the, the sort of intellectual end, I think, or, or effects and things like that. Mm. Bavuze can bring the, the, uh, the emotion out. Again, it's not. We shouldn't expect the emotion to be as pronounced as it was in the Romantic era, like in Chopin's music. That was a different era, mm. and the classical era composers weren't that. They didn't want things to be syrupy. They just wanted them to be beautiful. Okay, this is a different thing. Tracks nine to eleven, Sonata number fourteen in C major, Hoboken sixteen three. Allegretto movement. There's a three movement work. There's a quick arpeggiated chord line in the bass. Supporting the dancing appoggiatura laden theme in the right hand. Cheerful feel and lightly played by Bavuze. Second movement is an andante, and it's fairly fast, I think, with a although andantes don't have to be slow, really. It's got a nice forward pulling momentum to the melodic line. The right hand is pretty busy with figuration around the melody. At two minutes and six seconds, there's a sort of postillion call that brings in an appealingly awkward change of harmony. Listen to that. It'll kind of perk your ears up. Again, Bavuze judges this oddity perfectly, making us sit up when we hear it. And third movement is a menuet, with strong accents making it seem danceable, followed by a lighter trio that feels like its lines are incomplete, like it's heading somewhere that it doesn't quite get to. Though it does get a cadence at the end, and we get a repeat of the menuet. All right, the next piece is a two-movement sonata, number nine in D major, Hoboken 16-4. Uh, first movement, moderato. Moderato, shortish first movement at mid-tempo, but with the high spirits we've been hearing so far, I should say there hasn't been much variation from the major keys in the high spirits. Yet Bavuze's playing is so engaging that you don't long for contrast. He's able to give you this little tiny contrast within hmm. the movements themselves, and so you're always sort of engaged. Uh, from the 1 minute 50 second mark, we, we get some odd chords that nevertheless bring us back to the opening theme. Second movement is a menuet and trio. It's got a light and endearing theme to the menuet, which sounds coaxing in its kind of feel, like, you know, come over here kind of thing, and uh, provides the material for the, that's the menuet. And there's something surprisingly slightly heavier with a staccato bass uh, for the trio. 
All right, track 14. Capriccio. Acht Sauschneider müssen sein. Was sein. S-E-Y-N. Sein. In G major, Hoboken 17, 1. Uh, this melody has uh, is th it's in 3-4, and it has a heavier attack on the theme with a quieter counter melody following, so it doesn't quite dance. There's no real flowing waltz rhythm to this. The section after features a lot of rapid scalar approaches up the notes of the melody in the third minute, and there's a long, rather interesting departure into drifting tonality, where we're led in directions that don't do lead us to anything stable until we're finally back at the opening melody in the fourth minute. So this piece kind of acts like a rondo, but the capriccio part of it is the way that the theme will suddenly stop and morph into something completely unexpected rather than have a cadence mm -hmm. and then you have a new section. Um, it just sort of goes into this odd departure, like, you know, like sort of disappearing down a blind alley somewhere. <laughs> they come emerging <laughs> on the other end. Uh, I love the melody in the fourth minute departure from the theme. The harmony doesn't go into any odd places in this piece, but it does travel far and wide and always back to the theme. There's a great surprise chord at 6 minutes and 44 seconds that briefly stops the music after a period of build-up to the cadence, but we just get right back on track to the end. It's an enjoyable piece with interesting harmonic excursions that feel freeing and imaginative. Tracks 15 to 21 are a theme and variations in C major, uh, Hoboken 17-5. The theme is pretty basic, lightly taken. There's a contrasting middle eight section. First variation is a flourish followed by a chord, more staccato approach. Variation two has a bit more winding figuration, each phrase ending with a figure featuring descending thirds. The third uh, variation has syncopated rhythms, starting with a sort of hunting fanfare in the bass end of the piano. There's a lot of creativity in shaping the various parts of the melody in this particular variation. Variation four has pauses between sections of the phrase and a lot of short trills. Variation five is in a minor key, and this comes Ooh. as a big shock on this program because we haven't heard any minor keys at all up to this point. Mm. So this kind of stands out in this piece for that reason because we've just been hearing about a good 45 minutes to an hour of major keys up to now. It's slower also, and the theme has a turn in it, but it's fairly straightforward, uh, more flowing than the original theme. And the, f the last uh, movement... The last variation is major. We hear the opening theme with its opening fanfare, followed by quick undulating bass lines that drive the melody forward for its second half. Tracks 22 to 24 are the only really big sonata on this album. This mm -hmm. one's 20 minutes long. The other ones are all around 10 minutes long, so this is double the length of the others. Um, and this is a normal length for a classical era sonata. And Beethoven's were longer because he was bursting the bounds of music. And Haydn was earlier than him. This is Sonata number 62 in E-flat major, Hoboken 16, colon 52. This one is actually familiar. I've heard this one before. It starts with a loud statement followed by a quiet continuation, This, which also kind of reminds me of the way Scarlatti's played a lot. Bavuze keeps this separation of dynamics obvious as a structuring principle throughout. I really enjoyed the sudden slowing down with Abagiaturas at a minute and 28 seconds. Uh, gradations of note length are very subtle in this performance, and I think it's that that keeps this cheerful album interesting. There is contrast, but it's all rather minute. Nevertheless, you pick it up, and this is the expertise of Bavuze's playing. At 4 minutes and 27 seconds, the development of the sonata starts very slowly and quietly, and it's a red herring, as is often Haydn's way. 
After a pause, we get to the development of the opening material, which features a lot of lengthening of the phrases as they travel through different key areas. Second movement adagio, a harmonized slow melody, and I love the skittering way the downward approach to a repeat of the melody is taken after the opening in the first 30 seconds. This is taken very slowly, this movement, and with a quiet, intimate feeling. At 3 minutes and 20 seconds or so, we get a contrasting section with some louder dynamics and a lot of space. By 4 minutes and 30 seconds, the opening section has come back. And the finale is presto, beautifully taken repeated notes, launching into an understated, muted theme, which explodes out in its conclusion after the 20-second mark. There's a lot of quick virtuosic playing of scales and repeated notes, and the dynamics and phrasing are taken to achieve the highest effect. Uh, Bavuze's playing throughout has been hypersensitive in the best possible way to every nuance that he has found in Haydn's writing, and he's perfectly attuned to this composer. All right, so there's still one more track, and this is a bit of an oddity. It's an odd way to end not only the album, but the entire series. It's an Allegretto in G major, Hoboken 17 to 10, colon 10, after a piece for musical clock. And <laughs> the piece has a dotted rhythm with a delicately taken theme. There's a lot of fog in the um, melody here due to heavy use of pedal. Uh, but Bavuze's touch is so light that the notes don't sustain past their welcome. Um, so I guess he's imitating the the musical clock of the title here. It's He's not just playing the piece. He's not like just adapting it for piano. He's actually, I think, trying to go for the musical clock sound or an imitation of it. Mm. It sounds very different to everything we've heard on the album. There's something underwater sounding to the approach. Now, if listeners know the... Um, Beethoven Moonlight Sonata, if everybody knows it, right? <laughs> the Moonlight Sonata, a lot of pianists out there have played this, and it says that the first movement should be played with the pedal all the way down throughout the movement, never lift your foot. Now, you can't do that on a modern piano because the uh, there'll be this, this big mush of sound. But on the uh, pianos in Beethoven's time, the sound would have been perfect. You'd get this, um, the sustain was shorter, so the, the notes would fade out, and you'd get this sort of murky but still clear sound. And I think something like that, the effect Beethoven wanted in the Moonlight Sonata is what um, Bavuze is going for here. Mm. I guess that's what a musical clock sounded like. It's it's sort of an odd ending, I thought. Yeah. Anyway, excellent performances in every way. Uh, Bavuze is alert to every rhythmic and harmonic twist and plays with an engagingly light touch and bounce to the rhythm. Uh, this has been an amazing album and series, and I highly recommend all of it to everyone who likes great piano playing of the classical era and if you want to get to know Haydn's music. I should mention, this will all probably come out as an 11-CD box set soon, so if you've got the cash, you really can't go wrong <laughs> if you're interested. If you've heard... The rest of this series, any of it, I've heard probably half of them. Uh, it's, yeah. I'm going to say that it's more of the same, and that's in the <laughs> yeah, best way but, possible, because yeah, well, we love Bavose because he's got this great uh, light and fleet style of playing with such finesse that uh, it always makes everything just sound incredibly musical and effortless when he plays. And here is more of the same, like you say, all the major keys give it this extremely happy and uplifting. Yeah. Even for Haydn, it's like super happy. Yeah, uh, so. he's he's generally pretty cheerful anyway because yeah. of all his jokey sort of nature of his music. You know, you kind of wonder if you know they were accounting for that when they had mapped out the series, or 
got to the end and said, oh, gosh, there's no we minor. We major keys at the here. end. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, everything is done with great finesse and flair, as you say, uh, drawing out the, you know, sometimes minute but interesting contrasts in the works. I think my favorite is the last big work on here, the uh, Piano Sonata number 62, just because this has maybe the most uh, digging in from Bavouze. Right. Uh, the first movement has those great contrasting dynamics, a rather forceful performance for him in, in mm. within his kind of style. And then the second, the Adagio has this kind of uh, contrast, gentle to more forceful, a nicely kind of hesitant phrasing in the interpretation that I like. And then the finale has just got dazzling lines, this kind of stop and start playfulness. I thought it's him at his best with flair to show off beyond the you know technique and lightness. So yeah, really good ending to the series, I thought. Other than the last number, as you say, is a little bit of an oddity, but yeah. uh, it's always... Uh, you know, really enjoying to hear his interpretation of anything. And Haydn, you know, this sort of lighter classical material, he just makes it come off with flair and great musicianship. And this one's uh, no exception. And if you haven't heard, yeah. listen to some of the other uh, ones. I just put them on sometimes when I'm in the mood for that. I haven't listened to any of them really uh, closely. I just enjoy the overall performances. And so I'll just be happy to have this one with the others. Yeah, and uh, Bavuze is also currently recording the Mozart piano concertos. And on the evidence of these, I would like, of the Haydn sonatas, I'd really love to hear him do an album of the uh, Mozart piano sonatas. Yeah. I think he can, there, there aren't as many as there are for Haydn. Uh, Mozart didn't live as long and didn't write as many, but uh, it'll take out, it would take up four albums, four CDs, really. Yeah. And I'd love to hear, I bet they'd be great. That'd be my go to, I bet. Mm. So. I bet they're coming too. I I wouldn't be surprised because he's already done the Beethoven ones. Right. Yes, and he did a lighter. The Beethoven ones are kind of interesting because they're lighter than they're we're light, used to. Yeah. yeah, he goes for a more classical, Haydn yeah. era type sound on those. But that's what was so interesting about yeah. the Prokofiev. You know, right? Are, they're not light, mm. and you wouldn't. He wouldn't come to mind when I thought of hearing yeah. those, but he did right. something so completely different with them. They really transformed them musically to me. Uh, mm. So, yeah, you never know what uh, he's capable of. Yeah. Speaking of uh, transforming oh, <laughs> the music, we, we've got... Uh, we, 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 we We had some intellectual kind of uh, approaches in the uh, Asfahani. Then we had um, the lightness and the joy of um, Bavuze's I had an album, and now we get the anvil falling on Wiley Coyote's head with the, with this next album, yes. uh, Tristan, which is uh, played by Igor Levitt, a pianist that I'm very interested in. I, I have a lot of things to say about him, really. He's he's really one of the more popular pianists <laughs> out there now, and he's a company here. He most a lot of this is solo, but when there's an orchestra, it's uh, the Gewandhaus Orchester Leipzig. Conducted by Franz Welser Must, and this is on the Sony Classical album record label. Okay, so Tristan is the theme here. Now, Igor Levitt fans of his know that he uh, he doesn't do anything <laughs> small. I mean, I'm still waiting for the uh, you know the uh, you know the Mumpo album by <laughs> Igor Levitt. I don't think we'll ever hear that. You know, I think they're too short for him. 
but he everything he has done from the Bach Partidas to the last five, the second, I think the, the first thing he ever released was the last five Beethoven piano sonatas, which are all gigantic works. The Hammerklavier is one of them. <laughs> and um, then he went to um, the Diabelli variations, the um, the Bach um, with the, the Goldberg variations, and then the uh, Zevsky, People United Will ever, Never Be Defeated variations all in a single album he could you know i mean one of those works is big enough and it just keeps going last year we had the 24 shostakovich colors and fugues and um that uh, on dsch oh, that piece, one. Yeah. <laughs> which uh m- might be the single worst piece we i've ever heard not to mention that, that we've listened to on the podcast <laughs> Um, by the way, my brother, it. my brother hated <laughs> hated that too. He actually wrote to me specifically to tell me <laughs> that he 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 couldn't. He was just so put off by it, and then he listened to the podcast. And he, he was relieved to hear that I didn't like it either. So, <laughs> so he was in his ears. He was mm. he was confirmed in his. <laughs> he was hearing it the right way. Well, got I, another I, bewildering one here to to get through. Yeah, this is another very heavy and sort of um difficult set of uh, pieces um, on this album. I want to mention, before I start talking about this, that on the uh, Presto Music, this is the UK um, record-selling outlet, they have their Presto Top record, classical records, and uh, this is number two this week on it. Hmm. And the thing is, it's got to be because he's such a popular pianist. He's really well-known and highly respected, Igor Levitt is. And... um, but I can't imagine that like a general classical musical audience is really going to listen to this. It's really heavy going. Okay. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about it. The theme of this album is uh, songs of love and death. So it's the Tristan und Isolde um, opera by Wagner. That kind of, And the way Tristan has been set in that opera and really in, I guess, other pieces as well. And sometimes both at the same time. All right, now the opening work on this album, it's a double album, by the way, and um, yeah, it's about 100 minutes long, so it, it requires two CDs, but I think it's split into a uh, concert performance with an intermission at the end, in the middle, because it really does come across mm-hmm. as, a, as a program. Anyway, the first work is a work that uh, a lot of us play when we uh, are studying piano. We're getting to a sort of advanced level. Franz Liszt's Liebestraum Number no. 3, it's a very popular melody yeah. that everybody knows. And you, re- you rarely hear professional pianists play this, which is really odd. You would think that, you know, it's kind of mm. like Furlies by Beethoven. You rarely mm. hear piano- professionals play it probably because everybody beats it to death when they're kids. And it would be nice to hear a professional pianist play it like really cleanly <laughs> so you kind of have a model for what it should sound like, you know. So it's like those Adia Antica. Those are mm. the Italian um, uh, works that they make um, – vocal students sing and you just hear them just butchered all the time so it's always nice to hear like a professional opera singer sing them so you get a a good model for them anyway so it's refreshing to hear this Uh, the figuration all registers beautifully and the melody line is smoothly taken and sitting above the accompaniment dynamically the passionate middle of the work is taken with great power and feeling and i want to say though that levitt's performance of this is very unsentimental and that's that's a valid um, interpretation, hmm. but when we think of, this is a sentimental work, I think I'm not sure. Maybe it's not. I'm not really convinced that this is the way it should be played. I like you know, there's hmm. a, there, a lot of people add a lot of rubato to this, and Levitt does not. Okay, he, he keeps there's it some, light. but he keeps it light and moving right yeah. along. Yeah, 
Yeah, like people really like to fill the room with this, with the, this gushing kind of like, you know, dream of, Liebestraum means dream of love, okay? So this this sort of gushing passion that uh, comes out mm-hmm. of this piece. And he, he doesn't do that. He rather, he's rather more restrained. Mm-hmm. And that puts this in the category of um, the Mahanas Fahani Bach um, pieces that we heard earlier. Like it's a more, I don't want to call this intellectual, but it does feel more of a, a restrained performance you know it's not you know it's 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 not just throwing all its morality away for this because of this burning moment that we can get out of this piece anyway so that's our opening and then we go we just jump right into the uh the, the, the abyss here with uh hans werner henze 20th century composer german composer's work tristan um, this work features the orchestra as well as electronics. The piano's part consists of preludes to the orchestral material. So when you hear the solo piano playing, it's a prelude to what the orchestra is going to play. All right. So Henze himself wrote this piece. Um, it, it's kind of an homage to Wagner's opera Tristan Isolde and also to romantic music in general. And Henze described his relationship to... Uh, 19th century culture, he said he had an attraction and repulsion in equal measure for aspects of 19th century culture. And I'd say this piece embodies that quality well, <laughs> because <laughs> I was both attracted to and repelled by it too, <laughs> you know, sort of equally. It, it was kind of interesting. Like I was kind of like getting into it. It's like, because there was a lot of familiar kind of, there's a familiar quality to it because he's using a lot of sort of romantic sort of figuration, but it's not romantic harmony, although there are sections that are. There's a lot of 12-tone harmony, and I don't mm-hmm. mean atonal. I mean 12-tone. He's actually mm-hmm. using that system on and off. They're not. It's not a strict 12-tone work by any means. I'm going to try to explain something about this. I was listening to this, and it was kind of overwhelming because there's a lot of mm-hmm. information coming at you. Like if you know classical music well if you are really well versed in the romantic era and just to listen to romantic music if you want to get everything there is to get out of it you also have to know the culture of the era the literature these people read because a lot of them a lot of um, composers wrote tone poems on famous literary works and and that sort of thing so you had to be a pretty intelligent person to um, be able to get all that not it's not that they were intelligent but they were very much in their culture mm. you know unlike today when you just have uh, the computer throwing in the internet throwing all this information at you most of it false uh, they, <laughs> they just had you know what they what was around them you know so they they all sort of shared the same sort of um zeitgeist let's say there are a lot of references to tristani solda in this work and I'm not quite getting them all. It's a long opera. There's a lot of material in it. I'm not a scholar of the opera, but I know it well enough to be able to say, ah, oh, this sounds like you know, something <laughs> out of that opera with that famous chord that never gets resolved that you hear at the very beginning. We will hear that chord, by the way, not only in this work, but also in uh, the prelude. The, he plays this as a piano, the prelude to Tristani Solda, the opera by Wagner as a solo piano work later. All right, the Tristan chord sets up tension that is never resolved through the opera. And for that reason, it's hard to keep aspects of the original score in your head. <laughs> there there are, <laughs> of course, the motifs uh, for the different characters. And it's hard for me to know, to follow all of what's happening here. This is a very dense work that way, too. It's really exhausting to listen to. Uh, there are a lot of references to Wagner's Tristan and it's sold to opera, some direct, others sort of imitating the material rhythmically. 
or via sustained notes. It's hard to parse. There's also um, quotes of Chopin's funeral march, which I actually totally missed. Um, I just read that that was in there. And there's also there are also several very jarring references to the opening of Brahms's first symphony, which I did get because they're pretty obvious. The funeral march is probably obvious too, but I might have just been <laughs> in my head when that actually passed me by. I don't know. If you noticed it, let me know when it comes up. Anyway, let's start. This this is a uh, – how many movements we have? We have six movements in this work, and the first one is a prologue. It starts very quietly and is rather fragmented, uh, sounding much like a post-war work in its harmony. Okay, so 12-tone. Then there are electronics. This 12-tone isn't enough to, <laughs> to bog you down. Electronics come in and present bending yet very smoothly executed figures. Um, this work is chordally based, but the chords all have dissonant tones in them. And many of the tones we hear are left to dampen out of existence. So they just kind of ring out until they're finally gone. A more emphatic bass in the piano starts just before the third minute. And the piece seems to be about its changing moods, which register with the abrupt change of dynamic in the piano and in other instruments. Occasional long-held chords and the winds come in. The movement ends on one of those chords. It's a resolve, important, because in the Tristan opera, the Tristan chord never resolves until the very end, four hours after you first hear it. <laughs> People went crazy listening to that opera back then because they wanted to hear the resolve and it never came. So it's like this unrequited mm. love. And, you, you know, I think people all reacted to that. Anyway, <laughs> second movement uh, is a lament. And the instrument is melt. Oh, this um, movement is melted into without a pause. It starts with some legato electronics. Then there's an active rhythmic figure that lifts the piece up a bit. These cascading glassy figures are heard often in the piano in this movement and are echoed by the orchestral ensemble. At a minute and 32 seconds, we hear some percussion adding accents and things get more dramatic. They're more heartfelt and ghostly after the second minute. Um, a new section is melted into at 2 minutes and 23 seconds. After three minutes, there's a striding bass line along with a happy melody with haunting drawn-out sounds from the orchestra in the background. Some of the electronics set against the piano blend with it for some intriguing sounds. There's a crescendo to some harsh orchestral chords in the fifth minute, which fades into some sustained electronic sounds and various percussion and other orchestral parts. The movement suddenly ends at the end and there is silence. The third movement is a prelude with variations. This starts out quietly with plinking notes, not in any particular scale. We do hear something like the Tristan chord resolving at 40 seconds. Then the variations begin. The first one starts with some loud chords, allowed to fade out naturally. There's a lot of space in the composition that allows the notes to decay audibly. I'm getting the sense that the chord represents the end of the variation. So at 2 minutes and 7 seconds, we get what I'm counting as the second variation, which has a much louder attack in chord-based material. It decrescendos to silence by 2 minutes and 51 seconds. The third variation features the orchestra along with the piano, adding some color to the material. It's mostly woodwinds, including some appealing bassoon lines in the lower end. It comes across as chaotically woodsy, with some fairly loud chord outbursts. I'm not sure if uh, 4 minutes and 38 seconds would count as the next variation, but it's got quick rising lines and percussion is introduced. It's pretty loud and fairly chaotic, though with discernible lines. 
solo piano is back at five minutes and 28 seconds with something quieter. And remember, the piano represents like a prelude to the orchestral material that comes after it. At six minutes and 28 seconds, a quiet drooping orchestral figure comes in, mostly in woodwinds, with some percussion. The orchestration is actually very interesting, with all sorts of unexpected orchestral color emerging. A loud tympanum comes in at seven minutes and 38 seconds. Then the orchestra comes in with a direct quote of the opening of Brahms's first symphony. Now, this actually has some kind of meaning because Brahms was Wagner's main competitor. They were both sort of going head to head for where the direction of music was going to go. All right. Mm. And um, Wagner claimed that Beethoven's Ninth Symphony showed the way and that music had to become like vocal. It had to have vocalists in it. And Brahms kind of was rather reluctantly saying, oh, you know, he's just going to expand on, you know, what, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Beethoven did instrumentally, I guess. So Brahms is kind of coming into this world here as, I guess, an intruder. And it does sound intrusive when we hear this. It really just sounds like it doesn't belong in this piece Mm -hmm. when we hear the Brahms... uh, the opening to the first symphony. It quickly fades, though. It's 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 there, and you're like, what's going on? And then it's gone. You're wondering if you actually just heard that. It's sort of uh, that kind of effect. And we're back to more abstract material. Lush string chords fill the space at 8 minutes and 50 seconds. They quieten and drift off by 9 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, when something ominous emerges in the low end, quiet and glowering, the track ends with gentle percussion, leading directly into the next movement, movement four, Tristan's Folly. This has a brief outburst of a chord, then some piano figuration and a roiling brass figure that only stays briefly. The piano starts playing virtuosic angular figures, then repeated notes imitated by percussion. That, that's pretty cool, actually, because mm-hmm. he's kind of hammering on these notes on the piano and then the percussion imitate them. You actually hear a little bit of this in the first Bartok um, piano concerto, but uh, here it's more extreme than there. This is, uh, in fact, a percussive movement, both in the piano part and the accompaniment. A romantic string theme is heard at a minute and 39 seconds in the strings, and at two minutes and five seconds, we hear Brahms's first symphony opening again, and quickly fades again, and there are some figures that crescendo and sustain, recalling the trajectory of Wagner's Tristan music, if not the actual harmony, because the piece remain, this particular piece remains modern and atonal. There are some pretty harsh harmonies in the fourth minute and a climax accented by the timpani at around four minutes and 40 seconds, which give way to string figures. It ends with percussive accents on the material and goes directly into the next movement. So the fifth movement is an adagio, and then there are a lot of sections, burla one, burla two, ricercare one, burla three, ricercare two. This starts quietly with quick movements on the strings, and I think they're glissandi, like the instrumentalists are bowing and sliding their fingers up and down the uh, the neck of the instrument. They're very complexly put together. The material morphs quickly into something more rhythmically driven just after the one minute mark. This quietens again to ghostly orchestration at two minutes and after. There's no piano at the moment. It's slightly goofy. Uh, marching and light rhythmic section starts after the third minute and morphs into winds playing a similar figure. It's kind of an odd sound. It kind of reminded me of the sort of um, kind of parody marches that Shostakovich did 
um, if you can, mm. you know, early 20, it's an early 20th century sort of sound. Um, then explodes into a shriek after the strings, just after the fourth minute. The climax of the movement is a long-held chord after five minutes that gradually decrescendos and descends to lower tones. There's a pause before the epilogue, which starts with solo piano playing atonal figures quietly. At 27 seconds, we hear something approximating the Tristan chord or its profile. At a minute and 50 seconds, we hear that Tristan chord again. It is allowed to fade and more atonal playing is heard in brief phrases. I should say 12 tone because I'm pretty sure it's not atonal. I'm pretty sure it's a 12 tone pattern and brief phrases that are generally allowed to deteriorate. There's some loud playing of chords in the second minute fading at uh, three, three minutes when a lighter touch comes in. Uh, there's a lot of contrasting material throughout this 14 minute movement. <laughs> uh, often atonal chords or chords with the 12 tones in them will with some of the 12 tones in them will be followed by a banal dance rhythm that quickly dissipates at eight minutes and 36 seconds the orchestra comes in and we hear a child's voice reciting <laughs> words and these words happen to be hilaire belloc's english translation of joseph bedler's account of the death of isolde um, there's a human heartbeat heard in there too. This is yeah. a weird piece. It's got everything in it. More orchestral material is heard afterwards until an inconclusive chord, you know, typical of Tristan, is heard at the end to end the work. Okay, look, this is a really difficult piece. And there's a lot of sort of extra musical material, like just tropes from the Romantic era, direct quotes from works in the Romantic era. There's probably a lot of material that's referring to the Tristan opera. It's way too much to absorb on one listening and probably 20 listenings. I think you really have to <laughs> live with this work for a long, long time. And I don't think it's going to be an easy work to live with. It's heavy. It's got a, it's got a, it's very dense and um, it is a listenable work though. I don't want to put people off it, but it's going to, really challenge you it's simultaneously intellectually challenging and stimulating too it's going to take a lot of listening to put the piece together intellectually sorry i couldn't articulate what's happening more fully here but you know good luck to you if, if you're a scholar <laughs> on this work and you want to write to us uh, let us know because i i want to know more about this myself please i would listen to it dots again for me <laughs> yeah well i did what i could it's what i heard it's yeah. not necessarily what hens uh, you know intended but um Jeez. Anyway, yeah, you could try listening to it with what I told you, listeners, and maybe that'll help. I don't know, because I'm, I've, I've, I've got a little bit of a knowledge of romantic era music, but I'm really slightly less clueless than a lot of people who are listening <laughs> would listen casually. Let's just say that. Anyway, um, that would have been a great ending to this album, but there's an entire other CD. <laughs> <laughs> CD two starts with Wagner's uh, Tristan and Isolde Prelude. Now, programming wise. I wonder why this didn't start the entire album out because we would have that chord in our head mm. when we heard the Henza work, right? And you'd kind of yeah. be all set with that. Okay, so this is an arrangement by the pianist Zoltan Kocsis, a Hungarian pianist who uh, he 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 died uh, some time ago. Really, he was. I think he. I don't remember when. I want to say, but um, it's a it's a transcription from the orchestral score. And this is the famous prelude to the opera with the Tristan chord. You can hear it from the 12 second mark to the 20 second mark. It's laid out gradually. And then you hear it again from the 36 second mark to the 48 second mark. So if you're wondering what the Tristan chord is, there it is. 
All right, Levitt plays this lightly, very slowly, with lots of space. In the orchestral version, the strings sustain the tones, but they decay rather quickly on the piano. Even so, it's easy, the work is easy enough to follow, especially if you've heard the orchestral version of it. By the second minute, we're hearing the big statement of the movement, and it really doesn't envelop one the way the orchestra does, because the orchestra plays like a fortissimo, and it just pins you to your seat. Uh, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> okay, how can it? <laughs> you know, the piano just doesn't have that kind of power. Again, though, it's followable. Levitt shapes it all well. It's a perfectly good arrangement by coaches, and it must be fun to play on the piano. But let's be honest, this music begs to be heard in its orchestral guise. Mm. I did like the arranging of the full harmony at the four-minute mark. Otherwise, the lines come across as rather wispy in this arrangement. Full harmonies in the six-minute register well on the recording and fill the sound space well. There's great bass on the chord at seven minutes and 13 seconds. The not fully resolved chord that's supposed to take the tension away from the Tristan chord. And Levitt does the rolling dramatic nature of the music well in the seventh minute. Um, this arrangement has its highlights, but what it sounds like to me, it doesn't sound like a performance piece. It sounds like an arrangement by someone who wants to get to know the score intimately by playing it. Because if you mm -hmm. play something on the piano, you, you get to know its harmony. And if you're just listening to an orchestral version, it's all spread out and you're having to use your ears only. You know, using your hands mm -hmm. and seeing the relationships of the notes really helps. That's kind of what I'm hearing here. I'm hearing that even more so in the second track on the second CD, which is uh, Gustav Mahler's uh, Adagio from Symphony Number no. 10, which is the only movement of that symphony that he completed and fully orchestrated before he died. Um, the rest of the symphony was completed by Derek Cook, and that's the version we hear today. The first, third, and fourth movements were all like outlined by Mahler, but there was no orchestration on them. And that's that's a big problem because you don't know what the composer would have done, especially someone mm -hmm. like Mahler who had a real ear for orchestration. And that's no disrespect to Derek Cook, but he's not that composer. You, know, you can't get into his head. So you're just getting like an idea of what might have been. Okay, so this arrangement is by... Ronald Stevenson, who was the composer who composed the On DSCH work <laughs> that we absolutely couldn't stand on Igor Levitt's previous album. I want to hear a proper, like, Stevenson, like, say, orchestra work, like one of his piano concertos before I decide whether I like this composer or not. Because I have to say, the works that Levitt is choosing to highlight by him really are not turning me on <laughs> to this composer at all. As... <laughs> I'm sorry to say this, but as we would expect from what I know of Ronald Stevenson and what I know about him is just the on DSCH piece, um, this arrangement is very, well, bangy. <laughs> it's very loud. It starts, well, it starts with a quiet melody played without harmonic accompaniment. And I should mention this movement is 28 minutes long, which is in the Mala tradition. Uh, the first full chord is heard at a minute and 30 seconds, and what this arrangement does is make the harmony stand out since we're hearing chords on the piano without all the orchestral timbres. Yeah. Yeah, we lose a lot by not hearing the orchestration, same as the uh, previous Wagner prelude, which is a key part of Mahler's compositions. This um, particular arrangement comes across as a bit marmorial or like rock-like, marble-like. It's hard. And the uh, Mahler movement for orchestra doesn't come across like that at all in the chords at around 2 minutes and 30 seconds. The rhythm trudges on the piano, whereas it floats in the orchestral version. Levitt characterizes the various articulations well, but I don't feel that he or that this arrangement captures in touch the quality of the original orchestration. You almost have 
to have heard the original in order to appreciate this or be a harmony and structure nerd. This gets pretty bangy by the 8 minute and 48 second mark, a quality I very much dislike in Ronald Stevenson's approach to music. The movement reaches a gentler section afterwards, but either the arrangement or the performance continues its rock-like attack. We've heard Levitt play lyrically in the opening List Liebestraum, so I'm guessing this is a quality of the arrangement. It lacks subtlety, and 28 minutes is a long time to hear this kind of approach. I'm listening to the highly romantic melody in the 14th minute, which doesn't come across as passionate at all. I think this is a work that the pianist enjoys playing more than the audience enjoys listening to because he's getting to know this gigantic orchestral score in under his fingers, you know. You can get to know the intricacies of an orchestral work by playing a piano arrangement, and Mahler's music can be histrionically emotional, and you get none of that quality here. That said, it is a highly concentrated performance. Um, the 26-minute the sort of line that connects everything is well-articulated. It's expertly carried through by... Uh, Levitt, who's really got a good feel for big things. Anyway, the album ends with a piano piece, uh, Franz Liszt's Harmonies du Soir. And this is um, a nice kind of, makes kind of like the sandwich with the opening. <laughs> we, we opened it with a short list piece. This is a very long list piece, actually. I like the quiet atmospheric opening achieved in this piece. I'm already noticing that this has more flexibility in the shaping of chords and themes than the Mahler movement have had. Why is that? I think it's because of the arrangement. I think it's um, mm. Stevenson's uh, the way Stevenson writes. Levitt gets a lovely tone out of the chords, excellent balance. The technical difficulties are handled expertly, as we would expect, and he shapes the material well. But this doesn't come across as hard on sleeve, and neither did the Liebestraum that opened the program. Um, gorgeous gradations of tone, though. Listen at 2 minutes and 58 seconds and onward to the hushed tone he gets in the chords. Then when we get to the loudest part of the work in the sixth minute, the sound he gets is gigantic. Gorgeously proportioned performance, ending with perfectly judged tone at the end. The only thing this performance lacks is the flexibility and phrasing that gives romantic music its emotional tug, same as the Liebestraum that we heard at the beginning of the program. This is a performance, and really, I think I could say this about the pianist too, that airs on the intellectual side. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that he's a like, say, somebody like Maurizio Pollini, who was very architectural in his approach to music. This is music that's, you know, this is a pianist that enjoys the intellectual side of music you know, more than, say, the emotional side. I think it's clear after this that Igor, after hearing this album, that Igor Levitt is one of the most, if not the most, intellectually oriented pianists out there. He thinks big, as we know from his mammoth previous releases, as well as this one. And he challenges himself and his listeners. This is not going to be mainstream classical music anytime soon, although people are buying it, so it's it's selling. <laughs> Though he provides some sugar with the two list pieces, bookending the larger material sandwich in between. It's a bit of a forbidding album and leans very much on the intellectual side. There's no hard on sleeve playing to be heard anywhere, even in the more romantic list pieces. I could have lost the Mahler movement on this program and possibly the Wagner too, although I suppose that belongs there. So you've been warned. <laughs> Go for it. That's what I say. It's just a tough program. As you say, the list bookends, they're unromantically played, uh, but yeah. nice to listen to. Yeah, they're nicely balanced and yeah. all that. There's all that there. This is great. It's great pianism. That's for sure. The last one. It's got some more dynamic and nuanced playing in it. So that was a little bit uh, more 
inflected than the first one. Uh, and I mm. was in a really kind of zoned out, open-minded frame of <laughs> mind when I listened to the Tristan. I was trying to make connections beyond the, you know, the references that I could identify, yeah. but I just couldn't make a whole map of where uh, things were I going. Think that's a, I think that's like reading Joyce's Ulysses. It's like a lifetime sort of uh, project to yeah. try to figure out all the references in that work. I was more able to sort of surf through the 12 tone and dissonant things than I maybe normally am. But when I got to the kind of a heartbeat in the children's voice thing, I was sort of wondering what it all meant and I never found out. <laughs> and so... Um, Not only that, but it's like, how many different elements do have to be in this? It was really, it was like, it was like somebody making this soup and using every ingredient in the house, you know, kind yeah. of... Um, so you know? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to discover and hear, but it would take a mm. lot of listenings, like you say, and I'm just not sure I'm up for that. So if anyone can find the, the real, you know, diamond in in this, uh, all of the digging you've got to do in here, then good luck to you. <laughs> you can, you can uh, maybe write an essay on it and send it to us. And I'm with you. I mean, I guess the, the Wagner belongs there because of the re relation to it, but I found the Mahler to be kind of a black and white sketch of a color yeah. landscape because I just don't get the the orchestral tones that yeah. really bring out you know the beauty of that. So yeah, just a a tough one. I he seems to take on these huge kind of uh, programs and right. uh, it's just the way he approaches it and it's an intellectual approach. Yeah, uh, he's he's interesting and you know I admire his uh, sort of effort and uh, work ethic to go through these kind of huge programs. But yeah, I don't right, know if I'm up too. to it as a listener uh, in this case. This, this guy's just making a direct uh, line towards the uh, Pierre Boulez sonatas. You know we're going to get a recording of those by him one day. Because <laughs> I don't think there are any more intellectual works than those. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's it for uh, Classical this week. It was Quite a climb. Now it's time yes. to come down the mountain. <laughs> all right. So we're going to go to the jazz segment, and it's all piano. As always, there's right. more piano released in jazz, too, than probably anything else, whether that's a trio or, you know, in some other kind of uh, combination. And so tonight I've got a little bit of variety here, and we're going to feature a couple young and up-and-coming pianists. And so I thought I'd start out with the solo piano album of an uh, mm -hmm. up-and-coming pianist who's getting a lot of attention. And he's quite young, clocking in around 25 years of age, uh, but he's getting some uh, attention. We've heard him before on the program, and that's uh, Micah Thomas. We, we've heard him before. Yes, really? we have. Yeah, I'll tell you when. When was that? Well, this release is uh, called Piano Solo, Okay. which is solo piano, on right. the Diggers Factory label. This came out uh, last month, September 16th. Now, Thomas is from Columbus, Ohio, started playing piano by ear at the age of two. Wow. Pretty young. And not long after that, he started getting uh, piano lessons. Uh, 2015, he received the Jerome L. Green Fellowship from the Juilliard School. And in, in the same year, he also got his Master's of Music degree there. And now he's been touring, working with uh, a number of artists. Uh, the one we heard him with was Emmanuel Wilkins Quartet hmm. last year. He's also played with uh, Billy Drummond, Joel Ross, uh, Nicole Glover, uh, Melissa Aldana, 
uh, so making a lot of uh, group associations. And 2020, he also had his first album as a leader, Tide, that got him some attention in the jazz press. And so here he is on a solo piano release. The one we heard him on was in episode 50, Emmanuel Wilkins' The Seventh Hand. Oh, he was on that. Yeah. Okay. And so I remembered his playing there, and I've you know, seen his name, so I thought, well, this will be a good uh, example of him uh, front and center here. And we're going to get a pretty good picture of his style as it is now because he's working with all standards or familiar kind of material here. Uh, so you'll know these tunes, and that will help see what he's bringing in his own style. So let's start out here with the old Jerome Kern tune, The Way You Look Tonight. Mm. Now, uh, he brings a kind of pulsing energy to his phrasing of this familiar melody, mixing lots of two-handed figures uh, among the melodic and chord ideas that he develops throughout the song. Now, when he improvises, he often has answering lines with his left hand. I like that. So not mm. just accompanying, but having kind of dialogue. And then otherwise, he constantly changes up his left hand accompanying ideas. This is one of the characteristics of his style. You'll see that through all these songs. He doesn't settle into a single pattern, and his left hand is very active and constantly changing. Um, yeah, quick silver, I think, yes. would be the word, yeah. Mm. Uh, rapid right hand running lines that have a nice springy kind of swing tension to them. Uh, it's as if it, he's got, you know, springs in his. Uh, in his tendons or something. And when he plays, it gives a nice kind of energy to that. In the home stretch of the song, he works up to a kind of bouncy momentum. Then he pulls it back for a lighter restatement of the melody. But this is a very caffeinated <laughs> rendition <laughs> of this standard with a lot of intensity. And that yeah. you're going to find that he's young and he's full of uh, energy just bursting yeah. at the seams through all of these and full of ideas too yeah because they lots of ideas it's hard to keep yeah. up with him <laughs> yeah yeah exactly next song another tune everyone knows the harold arlen's over the rainbow hmm. this one's got a rolling ebb and flow to the intro with two-handed synced figures working together with both hands he treats the melody gently letting the phrases hang uh including pauses getting more ornate as he goes along through it. Uh, he finds colorful passing chords along the way, and he takes on kind of a stride-like rocking feel with the left hand. Then he digs in, he makes it a little bluesy. The rhythmic feel changes up, giving way to bursts of improvised runs. Towards the end, he gets more percussive for a bit with heavier left hand chords, also takes some harmonic diversions, and repeated upward rolling and kind of stuttered lines uh, lead to some final high chiming notes. Then we're going to go bebop, the old Charlie Parker Coco for track three. This one starts with the famous opening figure and then into improvised lines. And then there's another familiar uh, melody strain from you know the original recording that jazz listeners will identify with. Uh, after that's a real roller coaster <laughs> ride of speedy running <laughs> lines, constantly changing left-hand figures. Uh, here that add punctuation to his lines. You're, you're really on an amusement park ride on this one, but some fine technical speedy playing. Hey, then we're going to get the Bruno Martino. Can you sing this one hey, in Italian? Right. Which one is that? Estate, maybe. Well, estate. Italian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, summer. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's a, I didn't realize it was an Italian word. I just thought it was a state. Yeah. No, <laughs> you got The original's in, Ita in Italian. You got to hear it. Yeah, estate. I didn't know that. Um, okay. It's kind of interesting choice. 
This one gets a uh, relaxed, medium, almost bossa feel at the start with soft left-hand rhythmic chords. Thomas plays the melody with varied articulation and dynamics, sometimes clear ringing notes. Still, there's that spring-like tension in his right hand, uh, the lines that are just bursting with ideas to get out. The contrast in hands here is interesting. I like it. It's almost as if there's two different instruments because the left mm. hand is so soft. Uh, he breaks out of the rhythmic feel, and toward the end, he gets more creative, with uh, left-hand ideas. Uh, then he gets softer, lighter, more flowing for the ending. Hmm. Next, we'll get a Chick Corea and Sam Rivers tune, a cyclic episode, Humpty Dumpty. Hmm. Interesting title for you. Uh, yeah. This song has really tricky syncopated lines and harmonies. Thomas's hand interplay and articulation are on show here, as well as the phrases of his lines that take like breaths at spots as if someone were singing it. He brings it down soft suddenly for the ending before a final skittering of notes. Uh, then the great Duke Ellington tunes Solitude. Again here, a soft left hand with rhythmic ideas and ringing articulation on right hand melody ideas. It's a balance of making some nice harmonic colors and some more bursting improvised lines. It's interesting that he sometimes finds a rhythmic groove I noticed this in other songs too, but he doesn't allow himself or the listener to get settled yeah. into it for long. Mm -hmm. You'll you'll sort of get your body swaying to what he's doing and then it's on to something else. After some speedy running lines and a percussive repeating note, he kind of pulls the melody apart gently though uh, and slowly to the end. Another classic jazz tune that everyone knows, Vernon Duke, uh, Yip Harburg's April in Paris. Starts with a rubato introduction of the melody and some exploration of harmonies with moving left-hand chords. It ebbs and flows, gaining momentum in spots, uh, trickling, then cascading lines and two-handed synced ideas for variation. Uh, Thomas has a softer touch in his right hand here. Uh, sometimes it wants to settle into a rhythmic groove, but again, he soon pushes on to other ideas. I do like the bursting lines that contrast with softer and lighter strains, and he ends it all rather gently with some final high chiming notes. We're going to get a uh, little Japanese word, ugetsu, mm. which is a Cedar Walton tune. Chiming rhythmic chord ideas here lead into the melody that has some spring and swing in Thomas's phrasing. And then he gets really ringing with percussive chords. Keeps the same springy tension in his speedy right-hand improvisations and heavy left-hand chords for continuity going through, lightening up in some spots. He plays some left-hand running ideas too, and then gets into some ringing chord bouncing with two hands. It works it into some rhythmic variations and more dense harmonic ideas and then it sort of lightens up for the ending yeah what does uh ugetsu mean i mean something like the moonlight or something what is well, that it's a hard it's a hard word to but yeah it's kind of the uh rain ame ugetsu yeah. is sort of like the the fifth moon uh, uh -huh. it's a fifth month kind of like the rainy moon uh, okay and there's a famous uh, japanese movie uh, yeah ugetsu monogatari yeah so which which are kind of ghost stories, so right, yeah. So yeah. Like, it has something to do with the uh, the fifth, I guess, the rainy fifth month and the right. the mistiness because ghosts are miss. It's it's really complicated yeah. the way they yeah. sort of come up with that idea. I don't really know. 
in the 60s, uh, a lot of uh, jazz musicians picked up on sort of uh, Japanese themes. I mean, there's that tune, uh, what is it, the Lee Morgan tune that was credited to him, but it's actually kind of a, a Japanese uh, right. tune uh, and like that. So I guess a lot of musicians were touring and playing in Japan and they picked up on yeah. some you know melodies and things that they heard and exchanged with Japanese musicians. Yeah. Or or for this, I mean, the Japanese name of the movie is Ugetsu Monogatari, and uh, mm. in English it's just called Ugetsu. So I guess, they, they yeah. might have just pulled it from the movie, yeah, seen the movie be. and pulled it from the movie. Track nine, a monk tune, Ruby, my yeah. dear. And this one gets a very relaxed unfolding. Thomas uses varied dynamics, gives us time to enjoy the passing harmonies. It does have some more monk-like motion in spots with two-handed synchronized moving figures, but he mostly keeps it open and uncluttered here uh, with a little ode to monk. Then we're going to get another standard Vincent Yeomans, Billy Rose, Edward Eliscu's More Than You Know. This one's rubato, but with forward motion. It slips into a more steady tempo, but he's not locked into it. If there's an interesting harmonic idea or transition to it, explore in more detail. Thomas shows a nice delicate touch in his phrasing on this one. Midway through, there's more of a fountain-like bursting of right-hand notes, uh, but he pulls it back into a slightly swinging and stride-like feel. It's classy and inventive interpretation, working up to a lovely little chime and pause. Then he continues on with a little bluesy and then delicate trickling right-hand section before some harmonic ventures to a pretty ending. And then 11, Jerome Kern's All the Things You Are. This one is uh, kind of a uh, harmonically meandering intro, hands moving together. And then it sort of tumbles ahead with its own motion, uh, not bound to the phrasing of the melody. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be able to sing along if you know the melody well here. But Thomas gets more animated in his improvisations toward the ending with final rising lines. It's an interesting approach to this tune. You can pick out the harmonic progression easily, but the melody and motion are something new in the interpretation. Uh, so it's sort of a different tour mm. <laughs> through the harmonic landscape <laughs> as an approach. And then we're going to end with a Gershwin tune, uh, The Man I Love. Thomas gives the melody his own phrasing that serves to highlight what he wants to focus on in the harmonic movement. Mm. At least that's what I get out of it. Uh, it's unhurried. I, I, I wouldn't have, I know this song well, and I wouldn't have actually identified this as this song if I <laughs> right. just heard it without knowing the title. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's the way I feel that like he, he knows the kind of uh, yeah. points of movement that he's interested in and he, he shapes the melody to fit those. As I said, it's not hurried. There's room to breathe between phrases he varies dynamics and touch, gets into some high and light right-handed flurries midway through. Uh, he gets some undulating, almost impressionistic right-hand lines to contrast with very soft left-hand chords, dissecting the melody at the end to a soft and lush finish. So here we've got a young pianist who's just bursting with technique and ideas. He's mercurial. He changes rhythmic feel quickly not settling into a constant groove for very long. And it's challenging to keep up with him as a listener because he has so many yeah. ideas. Uh, but he's working with familiar material here, and he always gives you enough of something familiar harmonically or melodically to follow. Uh, I like his sense of harmony, which tends toward pretty colors and satisfying resolutions without a lot of dissonance. 
so it's colorful uh, with added shades without being too edgy or offensive. He's interesting and he's all on his own here, sometimes maybe a bit busy, uh, mm -hmm. a bit too mercurial, but it's kind of a, an interesting exposition of what he can do. And uh, he's only 25, so I want to hear more of what he's uh, going to do in the future. Yeah, in, in meditation, you're basically observing your mind. You're actually watching these thoughts kind of like just drift by or just kind of morph into something else. And I kind of got the impression that this is almost like a, that projected onto the keyboard. You know, mm. you, you almost get an idea like his what his idea is in the moment. And it's almost like you're experiencing the movement of his mind, as you would say, your own thoughts if you were in meditation. Um, I got the impression that if he were to re-record the entire album the day after this recording or now, it would sound completely different. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> he would just have yeah. different ideas yeah. on that day. It sounds like a performance that's been captured by the, uh, the engineer, the studio. It's a great clear recording, and Thomas makes a beautiful sound. I also can hear a classical technique underneath all these jazz passages. So mm. he's got like some real sort of virtuosity in there too. Um, the piano playing relinquishes the pedal almost completely. It's a very dry sound too. And it, it's, it sounds kind of naughty. It's a, a kind of, it, it's a good match for the, um, the, the Bach and the, um, the Tristan album that we heard. Mm. Cause it's an intellectual record really. It's not yeah. a, yeah. You know, it's not a it's not really a warm record. Although there are warm moments that but they just go away really quickly. They evaporate and take a lot of forms. So yeah, I think you're in for a little adventure if you if you listen to this. It's kind of uh it's gonna be engaging to the mind. And yeah. uh yeah, I found it intriguing, let's say. I I did like it. He's got a quick mind and lots of creativity and it will ask of you the same sort of yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> adaptability if you want to uh, keep up with all that's going on. Um but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, bursting with ideas. Uh yeah, certainly. Young age, he's got a long way to uh explore lots of ideas. So Micah, we want to hear more. Mm. We'll look for more of him in the future with all those ideas. <laughs> We could have in the yeah. studio as much as possible. Wow. Now we're going to get another um, young pianist. We're going to go on the ladies' side here for Connie Han with a very interestingly themed recording. Yeah. Uh, and we've got the Secrets of Inanna on Mac Avenue Records. Uh, now, Han is uh, just a year older than uh, Thomas, born in 1996, comes from a family of musicians from L.A., also learning piano uh, from an early age, and she became interested in jazz, attending the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, and her mentor there is the drummer on this album, Bill Wisoske, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who also produced her first album and supervised her trio. And from there, she's uh, gathered a lot of attention. 2019, she was uh, named as a Steinway artist. She was also featured in Jazz's magazine, The uh, Shape of Jazz to Come Artists to Watch in 2019. And the idea being she embodied her primary influences of McCoy Tyner, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, and Kenny Kirkland. So she's rooted in these uh, big names of jazz. Yeah, and you could hear that too. You know, yeah, she does uh, have a, that kind of like appealing style. Her previous albums are Crime Zone, an interesting one as well. And uh, here she's got an interesting concept 
Well, her album titles are really interesting. As I said, the, her debut, 2018, Crime Zone. And then uh, in 2020, she had Iron Starlet. So uh, also her <laughs> her uh, choice of wardrobe is interesting. Yeah, I'll have <laughs> more to say about so, that at the yeah. end. Because, you can uh, take a look at that too. Yeah. Um, but here we're getting the ancient Sumerian culture being channeled. Well, with the title, the uh, Sumerian goddess of love. Uh, beauty and war. And uh, we're going to get uh, some other kind of interesting references in the titles as well. And we've got a kind of uh, interesting instrumentation on this recording too. Uh, sandwiched on the beginning and end, we're going to have some uh, alto flute and piccolo by Catis Buckingham. We've got the great John Patitucci on bass, who contributes a lot to what goes on uh, in the mix here. We've got Rich Perry on tenor sax on a few tracks, Bill Wisaske on drums, and Connie Han is on acoustic piano as well as Rhodes on several tracks too. So we're getting an interesting uh, combination of uh, tonal colors throughout. Uh, so we're going to start out with the first track, Prima Materia, and this is a Wisaske composition. So I guess, well, the meaning is first matter. It's kind of a concept from philosophy and alchemy, right. uh, you know, the beginning element from which all things are made. This one has uh, roads, light symbols, kind of a pulsing bass that becomes more syncopated to make an intro. Uh, then we get piccolo lines from Buckingham. Actually, I think it's actually doubled with flute. Uh, it seems to be maybe two tracks because uh, you get this kind of multi-layered sound there. The phrases in this piece seem to have like a 12th beat length. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be counted in three measures of four or something, but the actual phrasing seems to be in 12 beats. Han doubles up the lines on roads with the flute and piccolo. Also adds uh, tasty acoustic piano fills in between. Uh, the melody breaks for some solo roads and the drums and bass push it along with more floating piccolo above. And Han switches over to acoustic piano for some racing double time undulating lines over the unique kind of pulsating bass feel. Uh, there's a new more angular and then speedy flute line theme that enters uh, with Han doubling it again. Uh, the line gets trilly uh, over less busy but throbbing bass and things become more floating and rhythmic toward the end with dancing roads fills from Han uh, ending in a sequence of acoustic piano chords. It's a lush mix of tones with both keyboard tonal qualities, acoustic and roads, the flute piccolo combination and a unique kind of rhythmic movement to get things started. The next tune, Ereshkigal of the Underworld, and this is Han's original piece. I guess this is the goddess of Kur, the land of the dead or underworld in mm. uh, Sumerian mythology. It's got a busy intro of even beat drums and a dancing bass line with Han hammering out some rhythmic chords under the busy bass rhythm. Uh, Han charges out with an intense acoustic piano soloing. She punctuates phrases with dense chords, getting more percussive as she goes along. Uh, she plays around with repeated notes and rhythmic figures working into some more percussive chord ideas. The original bass and piano line from the intro, Crossing Ideas, reforms into a solo piano section from Han uh, with rhythmically charged lines and pressing chords. And she keeps building the tension with rising figures right to the end. Then everyone's favorite Sumerian hero, Gilgamesh, Another Han original. Gilgamesh He's my the, favorite Sumerian yeah. hero. <laughs> Gilgamesh and the Celestial Bull. Yeah. This one keeps the rhythmic energy that was established going 
through the previous track, uh, starting out with intensely rhythmic piano figures centered around a C-sharp and syncopated, insistent syncopated chords. Drums join in, and then Han varies up the rhythmic patterns, and the figures get some harmonic movement as well. There's enough bass energy from the piano here that I guess they decided to have Patitucci sit out on this one, so it's just piano and drums. Uh, there are a couple of solo drum interludes that transition to resetting to new rhythmic figures in the piano, uh, but mostly it pushes on with high intensity right through to the end of the short piece at 2 minutes and 21 seconds. We're going to get a tune written by Rogers Grant, who is a jazz pianist and composer associated with Mongo Santa Maria in the 1960s. This piece has been covered by jazz musicians in the past called Morning Star. Uh, it's a change up to a kind of a ballad here, and we're going to get Rick Perry joining in on tenor sax. Han and Patitucci lock in on some syncopated chords over tight brushwork from Wasaske, and Perry joins in with a wistful melody. It swings lightly with little stop time bits and continued syncopated bass and piano chord push. Patitucci works into some chugging, walking lines for variation, and Perry carries on soloing, making it smooth with uplifting floating lines over the rhythm section. Han gets to show off more of a lighter touch and clear articulation here. She mixes things up nicely in her solo with good balance of flowing right-hand lines, little rhythmic figures, and punchy chords. And Perry comes back for another round of the melody. Patitucci has some tasty, rubbery bass lines. You know, the those kind of stretched things he's really good at. <laughs> and Han adds some pretty trickles of piano at the end. Yeah, I want to say the bass is really beautifully recorded on this album. It's really present and, yeah. you know, <laughs> full sounding. It's really deep. It's got this great resonance to it. His sound always is great uh, and comes mm. through. And we've got Vesica Pisces. This is a piano and sax duet. Now, Perry blows a rubato intro and chords coming in underneath and then some chiming adornments uh, and pretty runs from Han. They sync up more with their phrasing, uh, getting slow waves of movement. It stays free and easy, Perry blowing soft phrases and Han varying up the tone color of the harmony underneath and also the dynamics. She gets a few spots to sprinkle in trickling runs between strains of Perry's lines and a run of chords pushing to the end with nice cascades and a final soft note from Perry. I like the way they phrase together and have good synergy, even though the flow of this is very free in the song. So it's a really nice uh, kind of communication they get here. Track six, also a Han tune, Young Moon. Uh, we're back to the trio format and Rhodes for this one. Han starts it out with high ringing rhythmic chords uh, for an intro over Wasaski's light cymbals. The piano melody moves into angular lines with pressing chords. Patitucci adds an insistent bass pulse to the fast, even six-beat feel. Bass and drums are really synced tightly, uh, vary up the groove under Han's rhythmic roads, improvisations, and butterfly-like flitting fast runs. Mm -hmm. uh, things clear for a bass solo from Patitucci. He keeps it rhythmic with punchy articulation, uh, great deep woody sound even in the high register. Uh, they return to the original ringing piano opening melody and Han ends it with some rising sustained lines. We're going to get Ninshubur's Lament. I guess uh, Ninshubur is like the vizier of the goddess Inanna in Sumerian mythology. And this is uh, mm. Wisaski's tune. A short drum interlude 
from uh, Wasaske here. The drums focus on tom tones and like a final fading and then rising roll that goes into his other original composition, uh, Wind Rose Goddess. So Rich Perry comes back on this one with sax. Uh, it's kind of a 6-8 swinging tune. It's got a breezy sax melody over uplifting chiming chords by Han. There's some nice harmonic twists uh, that keep the melody fresh. The rhythmic feel varies nicely in sections from more syncopated parts to harder swinging with Patitucci's walking bass. Uh, Han solos first, starting with shorter phrases that work up into the higher register. She teases with some spaces, creating anticipation before getting into some more connected lines, also rhythmic ideas and chiming notes as well. Perry solos after that with smooth lines, working into some intense rhythmic figures, and they tie it back into the melody for another round. Han getting some flourishes between phrases and some final chasing lines as it fades away. Track nine, the Galu Pursuit, mm-hmm. another Han original. I guess the Galu are were like demons of uh, the Sumerian underworld. Boy, you did you did your research this week? I didn't know any of these. Things. <laughs> I looked them up. Uh, this one's got chasing, or rather pursuing, matching the title. Piano figures uh, that get punctuated by syncopated chords from the left hand and Patatucci's bass. Uh, Wasaske contributes kind of surgical hits and fills as all this other stuff is going on. Uh, listen closely and you can also hear Patitucci double up on some of the speedy piano lines too. It changes up to a straight ahead driving swing for haunted solo over with intense lines and punctuated chords. She ends it with lines reaching down low before working around the chasing melody section again. Uh, there's an unexpected change up and pregnant drum fill pause before the finish. Then we get track 10, Dumuzi of Uruk. Uh, this is another Wisaske tune. I guess uh, Dumuzi was the god of shepherds, and Uruk was a city uh, at one time, maybe the most important one in Mesopotamia. Rich Perry again on tenor on this tune. It starts out with a swinging hard bop feel and sax melody, busy piano figures behind it, but it changes up quickly to a straight feel with bluesy sax riffs. Then it's back swinging for a few bars uh, before Han is left on her own for some chords. Then the bass and drums come back in with a more Latin-y type feel. So you've got these kind of constant change up in early on in the melody. Uh, Perry's up for a solo first, and the grooves continue to change up underneath him. But he surfs those changes well with a mix of more gutsy lower register lines on this track. Also some higher uh, licks as well. Han starts her solo with slightly dissonant chimes and then interval play ideas. She gets some bluesy licks in too, then builds into more connected flowing lines, reaching up high before some more bluesy and rhythmic final ideas. That ties back to another run through the melody with Perry, and Patitucci gets some bouncy bass figures under the sax when it comes back in, and Han a few final flourishes before that final phrase. It's an exciting tune with a lot of rhythmic change-ups. We're going to get a Chick Corea tune for track 11, Desert Air. This one's got a rhythmic left-hand piano, alternating bass note and chords, with right-hand figures also that create a mysterious minor modal mood. Patitucci joins in, locking together with Han's syncopated movement, uh, and there's tight brushwork from Wisaske there as well. Rhythmic chords and spaces let it hang in spots, but it gets a swinging 6-8 push through the melody. 
Han Solo's keeping her phrases rhythmic and tight for a while before getting into more flowing lines. Patitucci varies the bass to match, sometimes chugging along, other times letting tones ride out. Uh, he gets a solo for himself next, getting bendy notes that ring out in the upper register, but keeping a rhythmic push throughout. Uh, they work through the melody again, and the trio interplay is really great on this tune. Uh, Han gets some final improv flourishes as they take it out with a vamp that softens to the end. And we're going to end up with Enki's Gift. Uh, this is Han and Musasuke's composition together. And I guess Enki was the Sumerian god of water, knowledge, and crafts. This one gets a clicky Latin groove. Uh, Han's back on Rhodes here. And Buckingham again on the flute and piccolo uh, with Han's right hand together on those lines and she's also playing this very fat and funky rhythmic left hand part way down in the low Rhodes register so you get that kind of distorted sound if you ever played Rhodes it's a kind of cool effect uh, it sounds like acoustic piano chords are in there as well I think there's multiple tracks going on here there are little breakups of the melody with percussive chord hits left hand Rhodes fills and drum dropouts Patitucci comes charging out of the melody here with a bass solo. It's rhythmic, intense, but never sacrificing in tone. Buckingham and Han come back uh, with the backing lines behind his solo, and then Han gets an acoustic piano solo here, keeps the energy high with lines that run up and down and percussive driving chords. And Buckingham adds backing lines uh, to a final short strain of melody, and it ends really quickly, just over three minutes. So it's an interesting recording. We've got the Sumerian theme, unique compositions with a variety of instrumentation, those flute piccolo layers, the sax on the tunes, and we've got the two duo pieces, sax and piano, piano and drums. Now Han herself is an energetic player, creative, intense solos. The tight interplay with Patitucci and with Sasuke keeps the push through everything with high energy and precision. And I'd say this is another young pianist to be on the lookout for. I think so, too. And um, I think the uh, the secrets of Inanna are all upbeat and appealing. Who would have known? Hmm. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. I thought it would have been more mysterious. Yeah. Anyway, this is a che- it's a it's a pretty cheerful album. I, I, I found it rather uplifting. Yeah, this, it's and it seems pretty straightforward. I guess there are interesting compositions. I think the uh, Sumerian themes were sort of like a pushing off place for the composition yeah. sort of to, to inspire the thing the beginning good clean sound all the way through great piano sound too and on the fender roads as well and i enjoyed hans's playing a lot yeah she's generally very upbeat and she plays with ample warmth in a way that brings a smile i found myself kind of you know hmm. kind of smiling throughout this album uh, she's got an uplifting sense of the swing rhythm some excellent chords in there too yeah and Patitucci on bass is always great yeah. too. That's that's always a big draw for me. Um, the recording is great all around. The drums come up well, even in their quieter passages. All right. Now I had mentioned this at the beginning. I want to say something about this album cover um, or how she's being Han is being marketed. So the album is called Secrets of Inanna, which has a Sumerian theme. So why not put some ancient Sumerian sort of you know sort of incorporate her into this ancient Sumerian sort of costume or something hmm. on the cover. You know, that's what I would have thought of. But uh, they go for, they went for this, um, she, she's got this kind of like, I think she's wearing something leather and really sexy and she's looking kind of like a bad girl on the cover and even on the the, the back too. Yeah. I, she And I think it's a misleading 
sort of message to what she brings in this uh, recording? Because I think she's uh, certainly a, a musician worth hearing and, and seeking out. And I just feel like people are going to get the wrong idea from the cover. She should have just gone for the, uh, you know, the, whoever is doing her art. It should have just gone for some kind of a Sumerian theme. I think it would have been cool. And she would have, she would have looked at that. I, f- I don't know. I, th- I would... I'd want to, I know you want to get attention, but I don't know that this is the way to do it in, in jazz. I mean, in, I know that um, in classical music, Yuja Wang always wears this really, these really sexy outfits when she goes out on the stage. But in a way, classical music has this really stuffy sort of image and she's, you know, trying to break that. So she's pushing against something. Here, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that jazz has like a, you know, any, any of that. So, you know, I don't know what to say. It, it doesn't need to, you don't need to present yourself in a sexy way, really, I think, to sell records, especially when your playing is this good and you're attracting musicians of this caliber mm. to play in your ensemble. Um, I, I would have gone for something a little more arty on the cover for this. Just my thoughts. Just thought I'd throw it out there. But otherwise, I really love the album, and I recommend it be heard. Yeah, really good playing. It would have been cool to see some Sumerian art or something a little mysterious. Yeah, her in a Sumerian too. kind of out. I mean, that would have been cool. I was thinking of the uh, the Fultz recording of the duke oh, ellington yeah, yeah. with the the desert album it's a great album cover it's a great they should have for something cover, like yeah. that you know yeah you know with the camel and <laughs> it's just fantastic you know that, that might be yeah. our album cover of the year jean-marc fault seeking you guys can go back that's, and yeah that's going to definitely be on the year-end list uh, i was listening yeah, I to think that so again too. last week uh, yeah i think that's going to be in my uh my 10 jazz one so yeah. you know you'll get the mentioned too there there are way too many good jazz albums this year for me to squeeze onto 10 lists you're gonna have to do the longer one (laughs) you'll have to have extended version we need two parts yeah i I just yeah i just felt like her 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 appearance on the cover didn't really have much to do with the music we heard so i I don't think they matched that's the thing yeah now for the third recording this is i just wanted to pick a pianist that i don't know at all and boy i should really know uh, more about uh, this guy because this album really yeah. knocked me out and this is the me german too. pianist mm. uh matthias bublath uh, he's on yeah. yellowbird records here orange sea and this one came out uh, september 30th so it's brandy new and uh bublath's uh, born 1978 so he's a little bit older not quite as old as me as i said german pianist but he did spend a decade uh, working in New York. And what interested me about him, other than this uh, music, is he's got a lot of things uh, going on, various uh, solo sideman things. He's got a Hammond trio, so we're going to have to hear that. And uh, he's also got uh, a big band, the Eight-Cylinder Big Band. I guess he's uh, based out of Munich. And so he's got a lot of uh, things going on, and uh, this is my introduction to his music. Really uh, enjoyed this recording a lot. He's got Peter Kudek on bass, uh, Christian Lettner on drums, and uh, from the notes here, I don't know if these are translated from German because uh, most of the stuff I saw is uh, German. It says, uh, Orange Sea. It could be a sunset on the American West Coast, but also the reflection of napalm from the burning forests on the waters of Vietnam. Superficially, almost a corral, but in concept, melodic, straight-ahead jazz with a postmodern approach. Stylistically, each number stands for itself as an album. They result in an ambiguous and open fabric. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he's got a background in uh, different projects uh, of styles of music, and that comes out here. 
in these tunes, which uh, I'm going to assume there's no uh, credit notes. So I'm going to assume all these except one are original compositions. Hmm. Uh, and that one will be probably familiar to a lot of people. Uh, we're going to start out with Most Foul. And uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, inspired by Bob Dylan's Murder Most Foul. Yeah. I wonder. It's also an old. It's a, it's a Shakespeare. It comes from yeah. Shakespeare. This uh, right. that phrase, and yeah. uh, it uh, also you know refers to my diet in that I like to eat most foul uh, <laughs> duck, chicken, oh, turkey. <laughs> Good God! <All> of us. <laughs> anyway, we get an airy opening. I'm on a most foul diet. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, an airy open sounding melody with repeated ascending figures to start this one out. It's a lightly subdivided eight-beat feel in Lettner's drums. Uh, after two times around this section, uh, Bubuth makes some light and rhythmic improvisations for a couple more rounds, uh, left hand syncing nicely with the bass. Uh, then there's a really fun section of bass and left hand piano working rhythmic lines over tasty drumming. It's really bubbling with a happy rhythmic interplay. Uh, Bubuth comes out of that with a solo, a very nice soft touch with clear articulation, sometimes leaving spaces, sometimes connecting lines and breaking up with rhythmic figures. Kudek falls with a bass solo, a great tone. Double time figures, always locked into the rhythm and little pitch bends, very tasty. A Bluebuth comes back with the melody. Uh, they go through the bass and left hand piano section again. Lettner really mixes it up underneath there. And Bublith works into some more improvisation and bass and drums get the swing really driving underneath. They pull it back for a little more light melody into some punctuated chord sequences to the ending. Uh, there's a lot of happy rhythmic energy in this tune to get things going. Track two, Sherman Bros. This one starts with some tension creating uh, rising triplet lines in the piano and bass to a really swinging groove. Uh, it gets a bluesy feel in spots with triplet line returning and then another triplet fun figure in the piano. Bubuth comes out of it into a solo and now we're in a real 12-bar blues. Uh, he takes a few choruses, shows off classy playing, bouncy blues riffs, rolling figures, and some jazzier running lines, exploring a little more uh, harmonic possibilities. They bring it back to some of the melody strain for an interlude before Lettner and Kudik get a busy trading fours for a while and they come out of that with the triplet line into another round of the melody to finish it up so lots of uh, bluesy and triplety fun in this mm -hmm. tune then we get the title track orange c a gospely waltz with a nice light clicking groove from lettner now the rising piano chords on the beat give it an uplifting mood bubleth keeps the melody line understated slotted over the rhythm his solo here is unhurried Lots of space to show off his touch on ringing notes and lilting figures. Uh, he builds up into more chiming chords over Kudek's bass pulses. And it pulls back from the gospel high for another exposition of the melody. Uh, the ending has a rising staircase of chords into pretty trickles over cymbals. Uh, very nice tune. Four is one for Kenny. A jumpy, busy, syncopated, boppy melody that's taken uniquely in uh, complete rhythmic synchronization of both Bublis' hands with harmonization and Kudek's bass. So you've got these three uh, lines moving together, which frees up Lettner to add lots of 
fills and cool kicks. Uh, bass and drums come out of that melody with a driving swing for Bubleth to solo over. He starts with a few bluesy figures, but it, then he gets into some more explorative harmonies in his lines. He's being playful along the way uh, with a few salt, peanutsy, chimey riffs, but his short little phrases are packed with rhythmic intensity. Uh, he adds in a two-handed rising figure toward the end of his solo and ends with a falling glissando uh, to cue in Kudek, who's up next on bass. Uh, he plays lots of tight, springy rhythmic figures and comes out walking back into some eight-bar exchanges between Bublith and Lettner, and that ties back into the synchronized melody for another run. Uh, High-energy fun on this tune. Hmm. Track five, Zapruder. Uh, this one starts with a weighty progression of piano chords over cymbal washes and bowed bass. A slow four-beat tempo forms with Bublith sketching the melody lightly over the still bowing bass and light cymbal hits on the beats uh, with more added tom work and cymbals from Lettner. It swells and flows with Bublith's rolling chords and Kudek switches to plucking on the bass. Then Bublith gets to show off different articulations and dynamics in his restrained solo here. He leaves lots of space between phrases then works into some more connected lines Nice tumbling figures as well. They take it gently through some more melody to an ending with some final building chords and piano trickles. You know, I'm guessing this uh, title is from the, the Zapruder film the, uh, yeah, that shows uh, that. Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering if... What, what, it's kind of like a ballad, you know? I'm kind of wondering yeah. what it has to do with the film. I'd like to hear from him. Yeah, it'd be interesting Let to us know. know what was going on, yeah. And like the next tune, Science Lab... I was kind of expecting something out, <laughs> way out there, but uh, right. it it it, uh, it wasn't it wasn't like a science experiment. Uh, mm. This one opens with Lettner on some extended drumming, uh, featuring really nice, tasty tom work. Bubuth comes in with a ringing melody, and then Kudak adds some push with long bass notes. Lettner has a subdivided eight-beat feel going uh, lightly on the ride cymbals. It's got a simmering rhythmic push to it. Bublitz's solo figures have an upward-searching quality to them. Uh, Kudak follows on a bass solo with rhythmic pulsing phrases of rapid notes. Uh, they take it back through the ringing melody, Bublath adding more rising figures uh, before it slows to the end. Track 7, Samba Norte Sul. Uh, this one starts with busy bass and left-hand piano syncopated figures over tight hi-hat from Lettner. They culminate in a rising and then falling line that reaches into a pulsing samba rhythm in the drums and bass, and Bublath comes in to sketch a very animated melody over that. Uh, there's a section for more rhythmic riffs before it gets flowing again. Then they get back to the opening riff to start a solo for Bublath. His solo has a combination of graceful flowing right-hand lines, uh, creative rhythmic figures. Uh, they hit on a fun bluesy groove for a bit, too. Uh, Lettner gets a drum solo, and bass and drums join in to push it along in spots with very rhythmic riffs. And that ties back into the rising and falling line again, another round of the melody, and some more floating lines from Bublith. Uh, there's a section of pun punchy chords and a downward gliss, ending the tune with the synchronized line. Track 8, Monk Punk. Thelonious hmm. Monk, that is. Uh, 
I don't know if it's supposed to be monk punk. But I'm guessing punk because yeah. punk would be P U N K. Yeah, punk. but you know, we say monk, monk. punk. I don't know. Uh, so, but anyway, they're know. both yeah. with O's. Playful descending riffs uh, make up the intro into a cute monkish melody. Kudik gives it a fun bass bounce, and Bublith has stylish little turning phrases with good swinging articulation and a monkey like harmonic uh, diversion here and there. Uh, also two-handed playful lines. It gets off on more of a chugging swing with walking bass from Kudek, and Bubath works some more extended lines, but he soon gets choppy and playful again. Uh, Kudek's up for a bouncy bass solo next that also has some speedy double-time snappy figures, and Bubath returns for another uh, melody run to take it out. It's a fun little uh, monk tribute. Uh, really captures his playful spirit. Track nine. Uh, here's the tune that uh, I believe is uh, Michelle Legrand tune. Uh, what are you doing for the rest of your life? And here we're going to get a lush and pretty rubato piano treatment from Bublith. Uh, he swells it into the light joining of bass and drums. They take it at an unhurried tempo, but they lock in on the swelling chords that uh, push to new strains of the melody. Bublith gets a lot of room to let notes ring out into open space. It's a great vehicle to show uh, his phrasing and light touch, and his solo has really wonderful articulation, little hesitations between more running legato lines. Take another run through the melody after a solo with sensitive interpretation, pretty charming notes, and a delicate ending. A uh, very lovely uh, rendition of this piece showing off a different style of his playing. And uh, track 10, Vinci. Uh, this one's a fast, kind of post-boppy tune with forward motion that changes up feel along the way from swing to a Latin groove and back. Uh, Bubath surfs the changing rhythms in his solo with the surprise of a little kind of Cubanesque rhythmic explosion along the way. Uh, Lettner gets some tight <laughs> drumming solo spots with interjections from piano and bass uh, before they take it through the rhythmically shifting melody again. So I thought overall, this is a really fabulous piano trio recording. Bublitz is a real complete pianist. He's capable and competent in all aspects. Driving solo lines with complex harmonic ideas, subtle, gentle ballad playing, a great range of articulation from percussive playing to understated phrasing with light touches. The compositions range from boppy and swinging to a little blues uh, infusion, Latin feels, gospel-y type tune. Overall, a real positive energy emerges from all the songs, and the trio is world-class in its interplay and also the individual parts and technique and solos from uh, Kudek and Lettner. So this is a pianist that's got a, quite a repertoire and different groups that I haven't explored, so I'm looking forward to hearing those and checking out his big band and organ work uh, especially. Yeah, this was a nice discovery for me. It was like fresh sounding, appealing, and pretty much my jazz album of the week. Although I did like the Connie Hahn a lot as well, mm -hmm. too. This is kind of like this, the same sort of mood as that album, too. It's uplifting, um, also beautifully recorded. Uh, the piano is clean and up front, uh, full bass, and the drum sounds are registering. Yeah, I've, I really liked this. It goes to mm -hmm. the top of my list, too. It's probably not going to fit on my... 10 jazz albums that I get to pick at the end of the year, but it would definitely be one of the best, uh, the better albums I've heard this year. I really like this a lot. And it was the last one I heard on for, for this week. And it just 
put me in a good mood for the weekend. And then I woke up this morning feeling not so well. <laughs> well, you get a sense, uh, you know, he's in his 40s now and he, he, yeah. has, he brings a confident maturity mm -hmm. and uh, a sense of completely being able to relax when, when he wants to. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he can also turn it up uh, in intensity both in harmony, rhythm, whenever he seems fully in control and uh, confident in uh, all different kinds of feels. So I like that about his playing. Uh, I'm going to explore more of his recordings. A good find I, I, for me. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear more as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to rely on you to send him my way because I have to <laughs> okay. too much on my end too. <laughs> yeah. I just can't do all this exploring. So there you go, yeah. a uh, keyboard centered episode uh lots of variety here lots of intellect required intellect, yeah. i would say this is the uh the the brainiacs guide to the <laughs> piano episode yeah gonna get some uh real cerebral uh keyboard yeah. stuff going on on this episode but uh yeah there you have it yeah i don't know we haven't uh decided on uh, what next week's going to be about yet so we're not going to tell yeah. you yeah because we don't know ourselves could be one of many things though yeah, you're going to have to um, check out either the Facebook page or the Deezer playlist, which will come out shortly after this episode, and then you'll know for sure what episode 85 is going to feature. Could go in any direction. I've got enough in all categories. To, yeah, well, uh, I think uh, there's going to be a big discussion once the, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the podcast is ended here. <laughs> That's right. Maybe we should put that up as an extra thing so that people can hear how the, the sausage <laughs> <No>. is made. <laughs> <laughs> got to keep the recipe secret for now, I think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, check out all these keyboard recordings. They're really good. Again, you can get them all in one place except for the uh, Esfahani, which is on Hyperion. Uh, you can sample it, but you'll have to buy it. Otherwise, check them all mm. out on Deezer or the individual links to Spotify or Apple Music. Before we check out, thanks again to Fast Science of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Be sure to come over midweek if you run out of music to listen to. You want some more jazz releases, uh, come to our Facebook page. I give you probably a uh, half dozen at least good ones that I don't know if they'll make it to an episode or not, but yeah. uh, get them while they're hot. There's loads of classical out too, and I'm not going to probably, we're not going to get to all of them on the podcast. Yeah. I'll, I should it's probably possible. put some of those up too, just to let you know what they yeah. are. So there you go. Turn back in next week for episode 85. And until then, keep on listening. <laughs>